Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's business time, baby. You are listening to Solo Monster Sounds Off. It's such good shit. Mama Monster. Conquered the street. I like fighting a woman. What is with this company's obsession with ninjas? Oh my God, we're only an hour in. We have two more hours of this. God, this dialogue is shit. Who writes this stuff? Bruce? Come over here and fight me. I'm the Solo Monster, damn it. Solo Monster. Who are you to doubt El Dandy? Woo! <laughs> Happy New Year, sounding off for the first time in 2021. This is episode 685. I am the Solemn Monster, and now available for streaming on Amazon Music is the Solemn Monster Sounds Off. Very happy to add that platform to the list of many where you can now listen to the show. I had a blast spending almost... Four hours with all of you. We had almost a thousand people tuned in live on New Year's Eve for my To Hell With 2020 stream. And I reiterate that again, To Hell With 2020. I may be saying To Hell With 2021 at the end of this year, hopefully not. I answered uh, just dozens upon dozens of questions, including a bunch of your email questions. So if you have emailed the show before and have not had your question answered, if you have not Heard your question read here on the podcast. You should check out the stream because there is a chance that I may have answered it there. So much to get into this week. I've got a Wrestle Kingdom preview for both nights coming up uh, in less than 24 hours. In fact, back to back nights, Monday and Tuesday. Wrestle Kingdom is here, guys. It's that time of year. If you are a fan of pro wrestling, you don't even need to be a fan of New Japan. If you are a fan of professional wrestling, you should be watching both of these shows. It is the best possible way outside, of course, of listening to this podcast to start your new year. So we're going to run down both cards and a little bit of news. Okada was making the rounds, the media rounds to promote the show. And he talked about a major super card that he would like to see put together here sometime this year. Talk about that. Got some more notes on AEW's tribute to Brody Lee, and I've got some comments. There was some controversy this week. I haven't addressed it yet. I'm going to address it this one time, give you my thoughts on that. Sonya Deville is back on WWE television, while uh, her stalker remains sitting in a jail cell exactly where he belongs. And a jam-packed history segment to kick off the new year, so a lot of good stuff to get into. One thing that I was hoping to get to that uh, will not be on today's show is my countdown of the top 10 matches of 2020. Uh, I did not have enough time to get it done for today, but it will be up on the YouTube channel likely sometime later this week, uh, which I think is what I did last year anyway. So watch for that. That is going to be coming. As Boa would say on NXT, she's coming, she's coming. So uh, watch for it on YouTube, and if it's long enough, I may end up pushing the audio out to the feed as well. We'll see what happens. 
Uh, real quick note here, Pro Wrestling Tees has a New Year's sale that is going to be kicking off tomorrow, about uh, Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be running straight on through Saturday, January 9th. You can get 20% off all shirts in our SoundOff store when you use the promo code NEWYEAR. I think that might be all one word. New Year at checkout. So again, ProWrestlingTees.com slash SolomonstersSoundsOff. You know, there is a Brody Lee tribute shirt uh, that AEW put together. It's on ShopAEW.com via Pro Wrestling Tees. Uh, you can pick up a copy, if, uh, or a copy, you could pick up a, uh, a shirt if you would like to. All proceeds, all you know, the money made on that shirt uh, goes to benefit the Huber family. But just one note, if you were thinking about it, uh, using some of these codes, a whole bunch of different promo codes for this New Year's sale. is a separate code you know, for AEW stuff. And uh, you cannot apply that to any uh, sort of products that, uh, have benefits going to either a charity or a family. So uh, I don't think you can use any of those codes on, on the Huber shirt. So just be aware of that. Don't uh, don't think any... I don't think everybody is necessarily aware of that. So just keep that in mind. But we got the uh, first roll call of the year here. And, uh, and it's a doozy. I have to, again, thank all of you. If you didn't tune into the New Year's stream, uh, one more thank you for all of your support. All of your uh, patronage, all of it throughout the year of 2020 made our 13th year, our biggest year ever. And I'm hoping that we can top that here in 2021. And a lot of it came from the support of our uh, PayPal family. And if you would like to make a PayPal donation, you may do so on the solomonster.com. You'll see the button on the right-hand side of the page. Uh, it is not required. There is no uh, subscription or anything. As you all know, this show will always be a free listen for anyone who wants to tune in, but uh, your support is always appreciated. Deadpool. You've heard me mention that name a time or two here on the roll call. Well, Deadpool is dead and buried. James Herrera is Deadpool no more. He is now West Coast James. West Coast James Herrera, who also happens to turn 30 years old on Tuesday. So, happy birthday to James John Loose Cannon Lopez is back with us on Roll Call this week. I missed the Loose Cannon. I missed the Loose Cannon. I haven't heard his name in a few weeks. But there was no way he was going to miss getting his name on the first show of the new year. And I am damn proud to have him as part of our Sound Off family. As I am the Portland pop star Paul Hamilton. And Nayef Alsafar, the Night Stalker. Brian Becerra is also the Florida Freebird no more. Boy, we got a lot of gimmick changes here. <laughs> with the new year. Uh, in 2021, he is Big Bear. Apparently, that's a nickname his friends have for him. So going forward, he is now Big Bear. Brian Pissera, thank you to him. Beast Mode, Brock Joseph, Raymond the Mountie Medina. Kill Shop, Keith Hart, Fast Blast, Tim Banks. Steven Handyman, Hallistick, Velvet Revolver, Robert Murray. The Chicago Slayer, Willie Eichard. The Diamond Dallas Dance Machine, Harrison Soep. Dark Sky, Dixon Krasinski. The Wichita Workhorse, Clayton Nettleton. Ostentatious, Alan Carter. Magnificent Mark Winsley says, uh, Thank you for being one of the bright spots in an otherwise shit year. Continuing to provide content to always look towards and always pronouncing my first name correctly. Wishing you a happy new year and an even happier 2021. Thank you to Mark for that. It's very kind of him. And uh, thank you to B. Jones, 2009, and 
SBGuy1973 on iTunes for the uh, five stars and the reviews on there. And our friend Jimmy the Freak wants you all to know that Jobbed Out is a wrestling news and op-ed channel that just topped a thousand subscribers on YouTube on uh, New Year's Eve. So congratulations to Jimmy on that milestone. The show focuses on weird moments in history, wrestling history, some twisted top lists, trivia, current events, interviews with current legends and past legends. Uh, He recently sat down with former ECW Tag Team Champion and All Japan legend and former WWE star Phil LaFon. There's a name I haven't heard in a long time. Phil LaFon. To uh, talk about his career, this was only the second interview that he has ever done in his life. Not very uh, big on doing interviews, but uh, they got him for this one. He talks about his time in Japan, in the U.S., teaming up with Doug Furness, and how he uh, almost teamed up with Dustin Rhodes or Tom Zank instead, and uh, where it all went wrong with his WWF run. That was back in, uh, what was it, late 96 into 97, right? Furness and LaFon. Anyway, I was watching some of it. It's a really good interview. It's good to see him doing well. Uh, I have not even thought about Furness and LaFon in so long. But they had some really good matches in WWE with Owen Hart and the British Bulldog. Anyway, look for Jobbed Out by searching J-O-B apostrophe D. That's J-O-B apostrophe D in the word out on YouTube or by going to YouTube.com slash Jobbed Out. Uh, roll call is going to continue here in a little bit. We got more names coming up, so don't worry. But I uh, I do want to mention this. It is that time of year. It is January, and that means it is Royal Rumble season. And if you know anything about the sound off and anything about our private group on Facebook, oh yes, it is the 8th annual Salamonster Sounds Off Royal Rumble Facebook pool. It is Rumble Pooler season. Yes, it is. Uh, last year's record, actually, let's let's uh, take you back a little bit here, because the very first year that we did this, and I got to give all the credit to Zach Holker. Zach is the one who hosts this on the Facebook page every single year. He puts all the work in, collecting the names, generating the numbers. Uh, he does a tremendous job with it. The very first year, we had five pools, each pool, of course, having 30 people in it, five pools with a total of 150. Sound off fans. Last year was our seventh year of doing this. We had 81 pools with over 2,400 sound off members. So the goal this year is to try to top that. Maybe we can hit 2,500. And it is very easy. If you want to participate, it doesn't cost you anything. All you got to do is a pinned post in the private group on Facebook. If you're not part of it, you'll have to apply. Find it. Type in the name of the podcast, and you'll have to apply for membership. Uh, All you have to do is find the pinned post in the announcements section at the top of the page, and just like the post. You don't even have to write anything in the comments section. Just like the post, and you're in. And you have the chance to win uh, some prizes. So uh, this this year, your number is going to count for both the men's and the women's Royal Rumble match. And uh, that means your, your chances of winning have doubled in this year's contest. And uh, it's very simple, really. The number you get corresponds to the entry in the Rumble match. So if you get the number 23, which will be randomly assigned to you, and the winner of the Men's Royal Rumble 
enters at number 23, then you win the pool. And that number would also be your number for the Women's Rumble. Uh, that's just for bragging rights, but ultimately then you go on to the ultimate Rumble pool. All the pool winners are put into one big pot. And from there, we have uh, first, second, third, and I think fourth and fifth uh, placed winners. Or maybe not fourth and fifth. I think we're just doing first, second, and third. Uh, but those winners will then get a uh, a prize to be determined. And some of the things I'm hearing, there's some pretty cool shit. Nothing's nailed down yet. But anyway, uh, if you want to get in on the fun, go ahead. Go to the Facebook group. Look for the uh, the group. Look for the pin post. Hit that thumbs up. And you are in. I can't believe it's been eight years of this. This is the eighth one. It's hard to believe. But thank you to Zach for all the hard work he puts into it. On Wednesday night, AEW paid tribute. To John Huber, Brody Lee, who was the leader of the Dark Order, former TNT champion, really just getting started with his run in AEW after leaving WWE, and he passed away the day after Christmas at the age of 41. His lungs failed him. Uh, His wife mentioned that he passed away from a non-COVID-related lung ailment of some kind, And it devastated everybody in the wrestling community, not just in AEW, but in WWE and and independent people who knew him and worked with him. And not a bad word to be said about this man. And I have not seen this kind of outpouring of support and positivity and stories and memories for someone's passing, especially somebody active in the wrestling business, uh, since the days of Owen Hart and Eddie Guerrero. And back then, there was no Twitter Right, the even Facebook. I think when Eddie passed away was probably still in its in its infancy, uh, so you didn't have all this social media outpouring of love and support as I'm sure those guys would have. Uh, the way that you saw for Brody Lee over the past week, week and a half, uh, it became major news. It was a big deal. It was just soul crushing to get that kind of news because it just felt like it came out of nowhere. He had been off the grid for a couple of months. There were rumors that he was out with an ankle injury or some kind of minor injury, but he would be coming back soon enough. Uh, but now that you kind of look back on it, it was very strange that they wouldn't even mention him on TV. Nobody was giving any kind of updates. You know, he wasn't still appearing in skits and stuff, even on BTE with the other members of the Dark Order. It was very strange uh, that people were being so silent and so mum on what was going on. And that was by design. That was because the the talent and the executives in the company had made a promise to his wife that uh, they would not say anything. They would not tip their hat as far as what was going on. Some people were asking questions and they weren't getting answers. And that was because the family wanted their privacy. And then on Wednesday night, they produced a tribute show that I thought was the finest two hours of television that AEW has ever produced. As sad as it was. And it was a very sad show. It had its moments of levity. It had its moments that were really, really cool uh, that I don't think anybody who watched that show will ever forget. But I wish none of it had to happen. It's it's the best show AEW ever did that I wish never happened. But I think everybody in that company who had a hand in being part of that and paying tribute uh, should be very proud of what they put together. Now, per PW Insider, Tony Khan wrote the show and put it all together himself. Uh, He wanted to put out something that would be meaningful. And he stayed awake over 48 hours straight between the writing of the show and all the other responsibilities that he has. Because AEW is not his only responsibility. Uh, So he was putting everything he could 
into making sure that this show came out in a way uh, that the fans, but also the family, would appreciate. Uh, we had an appearance on the show, and this was probably the best segment outside of what they did with Brody's son at the very end. Uh, there was a match on the show that involved MJF and the members of the Inner Circle, and uh, they were taking on, I think it was the, the Hangman Page and the other members of the Dark Order, John Silver, Alex Reynolds. There was an Eric Redbeard appearance. The former Eric Rowan, good friend of John Huber, former tag team partner with Luke Harper in WWE, member of the Wyatt family. Uh, he's kind of been doing his own thing since leaving the company. And he made an appearance at Daly's place to fight off Wardlow when he got involved in the match and fought him to the back. And when the match was over, he came back out. He had a giant sign that was, you know, talking about, you know, rest in peace, brother. We'll see each other again one day. It was something along those lines. And he was very emotional. And he was hugging, you know, John Silver and the other members of the Dark Order. And, um, you know, I, I don't, we've never seen him, certainly on television before, be that emotional. But you can understand why uh, he would be. It was a very, very uh, emotional segment, uh, appearance. Brody's son, his older son, his eight-year-old son, uh, Brody Jr., was in the front row for much of the show, wearing a Dark Order mask, holding a kendo stick in his hand. MJF was healing it up. He ripped the mask off his head. Brody Jr. popped him in the head with the kendo stick for a nice big pop. He had a big smile on his face. Everything about that match and that segment just... It, it, was, it was great. It really was. And... Yeah, look, as far as Redbeard is concerned, is he going to be brought back? This was just a one-off. Who's to say that he won't do business with AEW at some point? I don't believe there's any plans for that. Could I see him having a role in the Dark Order at some point? A role? Maybe. You know, possibly. And maybe he'd even be able to, you know, show show some personality that we've never seen him show before. Like, same with Luke Harper in WWE. We saw a different side of him. Uh, and certainly in the BTE stuff, a more comedic side of him in, in AW. Uh, but that's not what this was about. This was not about him coming in and negotiating for a contract or anything like that. No, I don't think they should bring him in and make him the leader of the Dark Order. I don't think they should, we should be talking about uh, replacing Brody Lee so quickly as the leader of anything. I think that would be kind of a slap in the face. I think over time, you may have a Colt Cabana or you may have a John Silver. Maybe it's more appropriate, frankly, that John Silver... Uh, eventually ascends to the leader of the group. He was the one that Brody Lee saw something in. You know, he would kind of bully him in the segments and stuff for comedy, but uh, he saw something in him. You know, and John Silver said he and Alex Reynolds both owe their careers to Brody Lee because he was the one who pushed for them to get contracts with AEW. So something like that I could see as time goes on. I, I think it's the wrong time to be talking who who can replace him and what's going to happen to the Dark Order you know, on this show, the Dark Order won every single match uh, for which there was a member of the Dark Order involved. And you had to know that that would be the case. It's like when WWE used to do the, I guess they still do, but when they did the tribute to the troops, pretty much every single year, up and down the card, all the baby faces would win. Because the whole point was to put a smile on their faces and it's a feel-good thing, and that's exactly what this show was designed uh, to be. So there was no real... Surprise there, but it wasn't about the outcomes of the matches. It wasn't about who's coming in for a contract or storyline stuff. That's not what that show on Wednesday uh, was about. At the very end, Tony Khan came out. He was in the ring with Cody. They brought out Brody Jr. They brought out uh, his widow, Amanda. 
And Tony Khan presented the TNT title to Brody Jr. and called him the TNT champion for life. He gifted the title, the same title his father held. The same title that when Brody Lee won the TNT belt back, I guess it would have been in late August. He said the first thing he did when he got home is he snuck the title into his son's bed as he was sleeping so that when he woke up in the morning, the first thing he would find was the TNT title. And when he lost the championship to Cody in the dog collar match, his son really wasn't overly concerned about his father who was bleeding and beat up from the match, you know, injured on TV from the match. He was more upset that he lost the title. So I think it's appropriate now that uh, that title belongs to him. Tony Khan has said they're going to be uh, designing a new TNT title, I guess, that uh, Darby Allen will have going forward. So that red strap version of the TNT title uh, is now history. But uh, he is also signed to an AEW contract. Brody Jr. is signed to a legitimate AEW contract so that when he grows up, if he wants to become a wrestler, if this is the field that he wants to pursue... And he wants the father and his, or father, follow in his father's footsteps. Uh, he's got a spot waiting for him in AEW. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So I thought that was a very cool uh, gesture as well. The song, it was a Tom Waits song, Old 55, that was played in the tribute video at the end of the show. Uh, Tony Khan bought the rights to the song in perpetuity so that the company will always have the rights for it, no matter what, no matter how many years go by. Uh, and on all their media, if anybody wants to watch the video, if they want to replay the video, they won't have to you know, dub new music over it. So uh, that's something that he took care of. I mentioned the tribute shirt on Pro Wrestling Tees, shopaw.com, fastest selling shirt in uh, less than a two hour period in the history of that website, with all the proceeds going to benefit the family. Uh, there was a New Year's Eve party that AEW held. Footage was leaked from that party. Brian Pillman Jr. and some other people put out some video from it. And the family was there. They were invited to be at the party. And Brody Jr., he is just beating the hell out of everybody. He's do, he's wrestling matches against different people. Britt Baker put video up of uh, Brody, Brody Jr. beating up Adam Cole. Adam Cole selling for all of his offense. He pinned Adam Cole on the video. So there you go. The first interpromotional match between WWE and AEW uh, is won by, uh, by an eight-year-old. Now we just got to get him in the ring with Nicholas. That'll be a future WrestleMania match right there. Maybe we can get uh, King Maxwell, right? Matt Hardy's son in there, make it a triple threat. But just 
you know, everything that they that they did this week, they went out of their way. Not not just Tony Khan, but all the talent and, and friends of his went out of their way to make sure that uh, that kid had a smile on his face and that they could just take his mind off things, at least for a little bit. I mean, the kid just lost his father the day after Christmas. The kid's eight years old. You know, his brother, his little brother, I think, is maybe four, three or four. He probably has no concept of what's even going on. Uh, but, you know, the kid's eight years old. He not only lost his father, but his father was laying in, in the hospital, probably not even able to talk to him for two months. Building up to what happened. That's a tough thing for anybody to go through, regardless of how old you are, let alone if you're eight. And to have to watch your dad like that, it's a horrible thing. So uh, it was very, very nice to see all of them just, uh, you know, playing along and just doing whatever they could to keep him occupied and, and put a smile on his face. Just some final details here. Uh, he was hospitalized since late October. That is where he has been. Uh, he was, according to Tony Schiavone, he was airlifted from his home how bad it was to the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville just either a day after or a few days after the podcast that he did with Tony Schiavone and Aubrey Edwards which you can watch on the AEW YouTube channel where he was telling stories and laughing and almost marking out for Tony Schiavone and just telling all these stories and to think that the next day or, or two days later he was in such a bad way that he had to be airlifted to the Mayo Clinic it's just unbelievable how quickly uh, things just went downhill. And he did note during that interview that he did Peloton a lot, which a lot of people have done during the pandemic. Uh, and, you know, it's like a, a, an exercise bike that you have at home. And I think it's linked into a studio in New York or whatever. And you do these exercises, you know, you do cardio with it. So he was big into that. And he told the story on the podcast that uh, just days beforehand, for the very first time, he had to quit a Peloton workout after about 20 minutes because his body, he just couldn't do it. You know, and he figured it was the fallout from the chain match where he was really beat up after the match with Cody. And maybe my body just needs to get, you know, kind of reacclimated. But that had never happened to him before where he could not finish the workout. Now, he didn't say he couldn't, he had trouble breathing or he didn't say exactly what it was. But, I mean, you look back on that now and it's very eerie. Seems like there were some signs that something wasn't quite right, but who the hell thinks that something like this is going to be the outcome of that? You know, you you work out, you get tired, you stop, you figure, okay, my body is run down, and I'll get back at it in a few days, or I'll get back at it in a few weeks. But now in hindsight, to go back and hear him tell that story is, is very eerie. Now, Jim Ross on his uh, Grill and JR podcast... Uh, said that he was told it was double lung failure. And it was so bad that he did not even qualify for a transplant. So the fact that they were even considering a lung or a double lung transplant in the first place is obviously, you know, horrifying. And the fact that he was so bad off, he didn't even qualify. It's just awful. And per The Observer, and Huber's wife said as much here on her uh, Instagram. But per the Observer, doctors were just testing him over and over and over again in the hospital. Every COVID test imaginable. 
because there's a bunch of different ones. You got the nasal swab, and I think there's a saliva one. There's a whole bunch of different tests. Uh, there's also the antibodies test where they can check to see if you had COVID. Even if you don't realize you did, they can check. I don't know how far back they can check, but they could check to see if you had COVID. Every single one of these tests came back negative. They kept checking and checking and checking because you would think, well, that may be the most obvious answer for why an otherwise seemingly healthy 41-year-old would succumb to a lung ailment. And they did. They checked into all of these things and every single test came back negative. There was no indication of COVID or anything. It's the Mayo Clinic. These people know what they're doing. So I'm sure they're going to run every test under the sun. And the fact that even they were stumped as to what exactly happened here, as frustrating as it is for them, it's more frustrating, I'm sure, for his wife. And for the people that he was very close to. But I mean, you know, AEW is also testing him. AEW has their protocol just like WWE does. Um, and they have pulled people from Dynamite before for even being in the vicinity of somebody who later tested for COVID, tested positive. They've had to redo some of their Dynamite cards because they've pulled people off the show, even if just for uh, precautionary reasons. So I'm sure they were also testing him weekly because he was part of the roster. You know, he was no more or less special than anybody else, and so he was being tested at work uh, on a regular basis and... You know, obviously all of these tests just kept coming up negative. That did not stop, though, some people from very publicly casting doubt on that. And on the fact that the man's wife literally said that he was tested repeatedly for COVID and all tests came back negative. And I think in actually her follow-up post, she even made the comment that she almost wishes he did have it. Because then at least they would have some answers. Bruce Mitchell was all over the news. Bruce Mitchell has worked for the Pro Wrestling Torch. He has written for the Torch for 30 years. No more. Bruce Mitchell was relieved of his duties. He was let go after a 30-year run at the Pro Wrestling Torch within, what was it, a couple of days, a matter of hours, putting out an opinion piece, putting out an article on the Torch website that Wade Keller, who runs the Torch, claims he never saw. I guess as long as Mitchell worked there, he had the ability to just go ahead and bypass the editors and publish his own shit after uh, being there for so long. Claimed he never saw it, because eventually they took the piece down. And after a few more days, I guess... Wade had come to the decision that he was going to have to part ways with Bruce. The two of them have been friends for for decades. But he felt like this was the move that he had to make. And and Mitchell, after putting this article out, which started out, you know, fine enough if you if you read the piece before it got yanked and if not you didn't miss much, ended up in the second half just veering off into all of this speculation and almost being uh uh, pushy and confrontational about the idea that oh, something is being hidden here. There's some kind of controversy, some kind of conspiracy. There's something going on here. Something is amiss. And then going into all this conjecture about COVID and how, for all we know, it's now mutated into something more deadly. There's no basis of fact in anything here. I don't know why he just kind of went off on this tangent about something that had absolutely nothing to do with this. 
and just the overall tone of the piece and as quickly as he pushed it out after this guy died and his family is still mourning and grieving. But he doubled down. Didn't apologize for it or say, well, the timing was awful. You know, I have questions, but maybe I should have thought better of the, the, the timing of it or the tone. He doubled down. He doubled down on stupid. Ended up deactivating his Twitter account. Took the article, republished it on a third-party website. I'm not going to tell you which one because it's not even worth your time. And if you care that much, you can find it on your own. I'm not going to give it any publicity. But look, here's the deal with because people ask me, were asking me on the New Year's stream and stuff, and I'm only going to comment on this once. I don't even, I don't even want to give this this much oxygen. Here's the deal. That is his right. If he wants to upload the article somewhere else, that is his right. He should have the right to do so. However disgusting it may be. However inappropriate it may be. It's called freedom of speech. But just as he has freedom of speech to express his opinion, not unlike what I do here on this show, Wade Keller has the right to disassociate himself and his website from those views, especially if it negatively affects his business, which I'm sure it did because you had a lot of people all across social media saying that they had unsubbed or were going to unsub from the torch because of this. So I'm sure that was part of it. It started to affect his business and he had to make a business decision. Even though he and this guy have been you know, friends for however many years, he had a business decision that had to be made. It is one thing to want answers and to state your opinion. It's another thing to double down and act sanctimonious about the entire thing. He pissed away a 30-year career for no good reason. There may or may not be a time and a place to raise questions, but if you read the thing, it felt just rushed out for the sake of being rushed because he wanted to be the first person to make this point. Right down to the spelling errors that went unchecked. It's like, did, literally, did I don't even think he looked at it, let alone Keller or anybody else. It just, we got to get this out as quickly as possible. You've got questions that need to be raised, and I'm going to be first to do it. The fact that Huber's widow even felt the need on her Instagram story. She never mentioned Mitchell by name, but she even felt the need to come out and address this. When her husband had not even been dead for a full week is revolting. I mean, look, I'm as curious as anybody to know exactly what the hell happened here. Why did this have to happen? And you know what? Maybe one day the family will give us an answer. If and when they actually have one. And if they don't, then that is their prerogative. Guess what? His wife said it wasn't COVID. She says he was tested repeatedly and all tests came back negative. At that point, leave the fucking family alone and let them grieve. It isn't any of your business if they don't want you to know anything more beyond that. You are owed nothing. You have no right to his personal medical information. And the same goes for Disco Dipshit, who was on Conan's podcast talking about the Mitchell article and arguing that the family in AEW are, are being, uh, they're not being fully transparent because we don't yet know what the cause of death is. He said that, you know, his, his general curiosity means that he's going to keep pressing until 
we find out exactly what happened. Well, well, gee, I mean, Disco Inferno is going to press on and get to the bottom of what happened. Woodward, Bernstein, and Disco. I'm sure he will. It's not as if he has anything else to do these days. Man's wife just became a single mom to two young kids. A week ago. You have the right to be curious. You have the right to be frustrated. And want answers. But it is not your family. It is not your husband. It is not your father. It is not your brother. As Tony Soprano told his wife in the middle of their divorce, you're entitled to shit. So that's what I have to say about that. Let's switch gears here. We are less than 24 hours away from back-to-back nights of New Japan's Wrestle Kingdom 15, January 4th and January 5th, from the Tokyo Dome. Both shows will air live on New Japan World starting at 3 a.m. Eastern. Uh, or you can watch live on Fight TV. I think they're offering it uh, for $19.99 per night or $29.99 for a bundle. Headlining night one, the main event is Tetsuya Naito defending both his IWGP and IWGP Intercontinental title against Kota Ibushi after winning his second straight G1 Climax. Kota Ibushi was beaten for his uh, IWGP Championship briefcase last month by Jay White. First time that has ever happened before. And instead, Ibushi is getting his shot at the title first on night one. Because Naito demanded it, and if he wins, he would then have to defend both belts against Jay White uh, on the following night. Every time these two guys step in the ring together, Naito and Ibushi, I come away amazed that neither one gets carried off with a broken neck. Um, And so I hope... As much as it's it's great to watch these two do their thing in the ring together, it is very scary. Hopefully they uh, they both come away relatively unscathed when this thing is over. Uh, when the match between Okada and Ibushi was over on night one of Wrestle Kingdom last year, I really felt that Ibushi would have won. Were it not for the double gold dash stuff and the story arc with Naito, which I guess had to be completed uh, the next day, and it was... Because Naito was in a, in a similar position, I think, that Ibushi is in here, where, you know, we may end up where if Ibushi doesn't win, you're going to have a lot of people thinking, oh man, you know, Ghetto really missed the mark here, this was it, this was his moment, why didn't they strike when the iron was hot? And so for that reason, you know, the, the Naito story arc last year uh, had to be completed, you know, and I and I get that. But I think were it not for all of that stuff, we may have seen an Ibushi win. Uh, Ibushi lost that match, and he lost his briefcase coming into this show. Now here we are, and I think the time is right. And I am going with Ibushi to finally win the big one and get the win here on night one. I'm going to throw my uh, predictions in here as we go along. So I'm picking Ibushi in this match. We've got Kazuchika Okada one-on-one against Will Ospreay. Back in October, Ospreay defeated Okada in their A-block match in the G1. Uh, after interference from his girlfriend, B. Priestley, and the returning Great Okan, who had been on an excursion in Rev Pro for uh, for a while, 
After the match, Osprey turned heel. He attacked Okada. And in the interview after the match, he announced that he had left the Chaos faction and had formed his own stable. Because these two had been friends for a number of years. And every time I think they uh, were in the ring together, I think Okada had uh, come away with a win. So now Osprey kind of going off on his own, the big heel turn. Uh, Okada, and by the way, I'm going with Okada to win this match. He is my pick. But he made a little bit of news this week. Okada was interviewed by Sports Illustrated to promote Wrestle Kingdom. And he talked about wanting to unite the wrestling world in the new year. You know, with all the COVID stuff and everything, people have been through a lot. And he wants to do something really nice for wrestling fans and to put a smile on people's faces. And he talked about wanting to either create or just be part of a big interpromotional super show involving wrestlers from all companies. He said that times are tough right now, but I hope what uh, we can do to bring joy to everybody all over the world is give them uh, enough strength and positivity uh, when the world calms down to give back with other wrestling companies to all wrestling fans in the world who still support us, even though we have this uh, current situation that we have. And he mentions New Japan, WWE, AEW, CMLL, AAA, all of them working together. And he says, sounds pretty cool, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> I don't know if, uh, I don't know if he's just being naive or if he's just being overly optimistic. It does sound cool. Hey, it sounds great. It sounds great. New Japan and AEW is going to happen. I mean, I, I've called that before. That might have been a prediction I made for 2020, but, you know, with COVID and everything, you could throw that prediction away. Not a doubt in my mind. AEW and New Japan, at some point in the coming year, two years, however long it takes to climb out of this, they are going to work together. I don't know how extensive the working relationship will be, if it'll just be a talent exchange, if we're going to see interpromotional matches, if we're going to see New Japan talent on Dynamite, if we're going to see AEW stars in the Tokyo Dome, probably some combination of all those things. I believe 100% it is going to happen. It is only a matter of time. I could also see something with New Japan, AEW, and Impact. Impact Wrestling, they're open for business, right? They're willing to work uh, cross-promotionally with different groups. I'm sure they would love to get in on uh, that kind of arrangement. So I can see that. I can see maybe CMLL, which has a working agreement, I think, with uh, some of these companies. But to me, from what I know of the uh, of the feud, or I guess the bad blood and the history between AAA and CMLL, the idea of AAA and CMLL working together is even more laughable than the idea of WWE joining in. On something like that. I think there's a better chance of WWE doing something than CMLL and AAA working together on something like this. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But in a perfect world, coming out of this pandemic, it would be incredible. If 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 COVID is what kind of brings some of these companies together, even if it's just for purely business reasons, they think, you know what, this has the potential to be a really big deal. And, you know, it's, it's going to be tough for a while until crowds are able to come back at full capacity. And every single business has been impacted by this and not in a positive way. Some businesses and some wrestling companies have found a way to make it work or stay profitable, but it has negatively affected every business, every wrestling company, every industry that you could possibly imagine. Okay, and it, it's even bankrupted a whole bunch of different companies too. It's probably put a lot of independent promotions out too. So if ever there was a time where I think companies that normally wouldn't do this sort of thing would or should be at least open to the possibility of you know, even if just in a small way, contributing or having some of their talent partake in something like this, that maybe this is it, you know, maybe coming out of this, maybe later on this year, maybe this is that time. And maybe that's what Okada is thinking as well. Obviously for the fans, it would be fucking awesome. It would be a a kick-ass idea. You know, it would be incredible for all of those companies to send talent to you know, wherever for one big supercard. I mean, the match possibilities are endless. You could do uh, Ibushi Omega. You could do uh, Okada, Roman Reigns. You could do Rollins and Osprey. <laughs> right, a little bit of history there. Some of the uh, the Twitter Twitter stuff. Daniel Bryan and Ishii. You know, I mean, look, they, we could finally, they could finally get that Moxley-Kenta match out of the way. That obviously is not uh, happening this week. Actually, if nothing else, you know what might be more realistic? We could probably get some fun tag team matches. Even if not a whole bunch of singles matches, we can get a whole bunch of fun tag team matches out of it. Uh, do I think this is going to happen? No. I think okada is kind of wishing it out there he's he's putting it out there to see kind of what happens and what the reaction is to it and i don't doubt that he would love to be part of something like that uh as cool as i think it would be you know coming out of all this uh do i think that uh, cmll and AAA are going to work together do i think vince mcmahon is going to send e- even mid middle of the card talent to uh participate in something like this that they have no control over or they don't directly profit off of no it would be a nice thing to do, but no, I, I don't see it happening. We have uh, Hiroshi Tanahashi one-on-one against Great Okan. After 10 Tokyo Dome main events, this is a lower spot on the card than we are used to for Tanahashi. But Tanahashi, you know, he's getting older and he's, he's he could still go, no doubt about it. But he's becoming the, the elder statesman, the elder ace. Of the company. I still think Tanahashi wins. It's one thing for him to be pushed down the card. But uh, I don't think he's going to lose this match. Kind of reminds me of... This is like Stone Cold against Scott Hall. At WrestleMania 18. Like positioning wise. It's kind of what that makes me think of. 
Kenta defends his IWGP United States Championship briefcase for a right to a U.S. title match at a later date. Uh, With John Moxley not defending his U.S. title uh, this year, and, you know, obviously now he's got a pregnant wife at home, I wouldn't expect him to be traveling in the middle of a pandemic over to uh, to Japan for the show. Kenta was set to defend his briefcase against Juice Robinson, who suffered a fractured orbital bone in a match on uh, Tuesday last week. Actually, this was two weeks ago. I think on Tuesday he suffered a fractured orbital bone. Uh, he's being replaced by Satoshi Kojima, who said that after 30 years in the business, I'm going for it. And he asked Kenta if he would accept the challenge from a 50-year-old man. And so that is the match. I don't you know, get to see a lot of Kojima. I've seen Kojima wrestle before. I'm not uh, familiar with all of his body of work. I believe he can still go. This could be a very good match. So we'll see. Uh, you know, we'll, I guess we'll find out how good it is. But I'm still going with Kenta. I don't see Kenta losing the briefcase to Kojima. Tai Chi and Zack Sabre Jr. against the Gorillas of Destiny for the IWGP Tag Team Championship. Uh, G.O.D. has never won inside the Tokyo Dome. For as long as they have been there and as many titles as they have won, they've never won inside the Tokyo Dome before. They have the uh, the opposite of the Undertaker streak, the reverse streak. I think it comes to an end here. I'm picking G.O.D. for the win. Hiromu Takahashi, the winner of this year's Best of the Super Juniors, takes on El Fantasmo, the winner of this year's Super J Cup. This is the match that is going to kick off the main card on night one, and the winner will challenge for the junior heavyweight title on night two. So I'm going with uh, Hiromu for the win. And then, one hour before the main card starts on night one, it is the New Japan Rambo. Not to be confused with Rambo. Which is what I always thought it was. It is the Rambo, which means run riot. I didn't know that. So you learn something new every day, every year. 22 men come into the ring in timed intervals. Eliminations can occur via pinfall, submission, or over the top rope. This year it is a little bit different. The match continues until four men are left standing. Those four men will then advance to a four-way match the next night on night two to determine the first provisional King of Pro Wrestling champion for 2021. So what does that mean? This was a new concept they introduced over the summer. There is no title belt. They crown a what they call a provisional champion first. And then that provisional champion defends the title throughout the entire year. And at the end of the year, there's one final match, and the winner of that match is officially the champion for that particular year. So Yano was just crowned the KOPW champion for 2020. He beat Bad Luck Fale, I think uh, two weeks ago. I think it was a body slam match. All title matches have some kind of stipulation. It's not just a straight match. Uh, the wrestler involved, the wrestler, both wrestlers involved, each pick a stipulation. And then the fans vote online to determine what the stipulation is going to be ultimately. So now they're going to crown their first provisional champion for 2021. Which brings us to night two. Coming up on Tuesday. Headlined by the winner of the Naito Ibushi match on night one. Putting their championships on the line against Switchblade Jay White. 
This will be the first Tokyo Dome main event for Switchblade. Never in Wrestle Kingdom history has any man walked into the main event of the Tokyo Dome for the first time and won. So Jay White has a chance to make history. I don't see that happening. I hope it does not happen. I'd like to see Ibushi win night one, come back and win on night two, and avenge that loss to Jay White. Taiji Ishimori takes on the winner of the uh, Hiromu El Fantasmo match from night one. That'll be for the junior heavyweight title. The uh, junior heavyweight title has changed hands at every Wrestle Kingdom show since 2014. Sonata takes on Evil. Two times before the Tokyo Dome, these two have become tag team champions, and now they enter as adversaries. I'm picking Evil to win this match. I like Sonata, but I think Evil is going over. We have Shingo Takagi taking on Jeff Cobb for the Never Open Weight Championship. We have L, and I'm going with uh, Shingo there. L Desperado and Kanemaru of Suzuki Goon take on M- <laughs> Master Wato. And Risuke Taguchi, IWGP Junior Heavyweight Tag Team Titles. I'm going to go with uh, Desperado and Kanemaru to uh, to retain. You know, Waito is a, he's a young guy, only 23 years old. I really, uh, or Wato, I should say, only 23 years old. I didn't really know too much about him. I know he was sent to work in CMLL in Mexico, and he came back from his excursion in July. I've seen very little of him. Uh, he went four and five in the best of the Super Juniors. I don't really get his whole gimmick. I don't really get his... I mean, I think his ring gear is deplorable. But you got to start somewhere, I guess. I'm sure if you look back at Okada and some of those guys early in their run, they probably didn't... You know, they probably look like scrubs too. So anyway, that's the deal with him. And of course, the four-way match, as I mentioned, to crown the first provisional... King of Pro Wrestling Champion for 2021. That is going to open the show. So, I am not watching both shows live, but I am hoping to watch both shows and then record reviews for each one of them each night to post on the YouTube channel. So, keep an eye out for those. Some more names here I want to just thank in our first roll call of the year. New York Punk, Arnold Modesto. Emphasis, The Prince, Robert Williams, Hard Times, Hank Spaulding, Big Dick Donnie from Scorp 18 Talks Wrestling, I Run These Streets, Ivan Para, longtime listener, first time donator, Battle Tested, Justin Gerke, Josh Caveman Kaysen, Marco the Warrior Matacoli, Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And the Bakersfield Big Shot. Steve Heredia. And I also got to show some love to Tyler the Boss Williams, who after having some issues, his YouTube channel is back up and running. Just in time for Wrestle Kingdom. If you are looking for some live Wrestle Kingdom content, uh, he's going to be going live for both shows at 1.30 a.m. Eastern Time on both nights. Uh, starting tonight, I guess, later tonight, he's going to be providing commentary and reaction in real time to the shows for those of you know those of you who plan to wake up early and uh, watch the shows. If you don't have any friends who are going to be up at that hour, if you want to just kind of tag along and watch with Tyler, you can do so. Just search Tyler Cun Williams on YouTube. That's Tyler hyphen K U N. And it will be the first result that comes up, or you can just go directly to youtube.com slash Tyler Williams and give his channel a sub. Glad, uh, glad to see he's got that back up and running. So now we get into the wonderful world of WWE, which I'm sure you are all so, uh, so interested in the goings on on Monday Night Raw. As we now are in the new year, we are getting ready for Legends Night, coming up on USA Network tomorrow night, hosted by Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. The first two people you'll see on the first Raw of 2021 are Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. But first we had this show to get through. Keith Lee pinned Sheamus in a match to determine who would go on to Legends Night tomorrow night to challenge Drew McIntyre for the WWE Championship. Keith Lee got the win. And yes, this is likely setting up Sheamus to interfere and cost Keith Lee the match and give us a fuck finish. And we should be hoping for that fuck finish. Because I don't see Keith Lee winning the title this soon, nor do I want to see him pinned by Drew McIntyre. I didn't want to see him pinned by Miz and Morrison a few weeks ago when they did that awful finish. Which apparently didn't lead to anything. I thought maybe he was going to come back and just absolutely destroy those two guys. Remember when he lost the match, Keith Lee, they zoomed in. He was all angry. He was mean mugging the camera. Nothing came out of it. Nothing came out of it. So I didn't want to see that. I don't want to see him be pinned here. I definitely uh, just, you know, am not interested in seeing him be pinned so soon after that. Uh, You got to protect these guys. You got to protect a guy like Keith Lee as much as possible. They were kind of doing that at first, and he got a pinfall win on pay-per-view over Randy Orton. And then they got lazy. They got a little lazy. With Keith Lee. I think he was actually pinned by Braun Strowman at one point. Then the Miz and Morrison stuff. You know, there's a reason that if you look back, certain guys, even a guy like Ryback, you know, another big guy who was mowing people down when he first came up to the main roster, got over. Uh, He was an intense guy. Keith Lee is not as, I would say, intense as somebody like Ryback was, but Ryback was winning. Ryback did not get pinned until the CM Punk thing at Hell in a Cell. He, he not only was beating guys every week, mostly scrubs, he was winning two-on-one, three-on-one, sometimes four-on-one handicap matches, I think four-on-one. Maybe I just made that up, but it sounds good. Uh, but there's a reason that Ryback got over, if, or, or Goldberg got over. I'm not saying Keith Lee has to go on an undefeated streak of 100-0 like Goldberg, but when you start pinning the guy and doing these stupid, dumbass, dipshit finishes on TV... He becomes just like everybody else. 
And that is what has happened to a degree to Keith Lee since coming up. And yes, he is in the mix with the WWE champion. He is in the mix right now in what is really the top program on Monday Night Raw. And that part of it is good. But that doesn't give you the right. That doesn't mean that you can just book him like shit and be lazy when it comes to some of these match finishes. Because when this program is over, right? You still want the people to look at Keith Lee as a credible guy who one day could go on to become WWE champion. So it's very important when it comes to these match finishes and the way a guy is booked in a match to, you know, treat him right. Because this is Keith Lee's first big impression in front of, you know, their their mass audience. And if this is a guy that you have big plans for and you want to put the belt on one day, well, treat him like it. Don't have him go in there and just get pinned straight up by Drew McIntyre. You know, Lee and McIntyre have some history going back to their days in Evolve. I think they could have a very memorable main event to start out the new year. But I'm thinking we may be getting a triple threat match for the title of the Royal Rumble. And I could envision a scenario, as I, as I think about this more, I can envision a scenario where Sheamus at the Rumble pins Keith Lee there. In that match, which is one of the reasons why I'd rather not see him pinned here if, if they are planning on doing this, because then you got uh, back-to-back pins. But if it, if it ends up being a triple threat at the Rumble, I could see Keith Lee being the one to eat the pin in that match where Sheamus wins the WWE Championship without ever having to pin his best friend. And then we get a proper singles match at WrestleMania with Drew McIntyre and Sheamus, but it's Sheamus defending the title against McIntyre. And that way, if they're doing this show, and they haven't officially announced anything yet, but it sounds like WrestleMania is going to be at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa, which is where it was supposed to be last year. Drew McIntyre was going to get this big crowning moment in this big stadium WrestleMania, beating Brock Lesnar and holding up the title, and he was deprived of that. He beat Brock Lesnar in a, in a very quick nothing match in four minutes. I don't even know if it lasted that long. In an empty warehouse. In an empty performance center. Maybe WWE wants to give Drew his moment in Tampa that he didn't get last year. And maybe they think that it makes more sense for him to be winning the title instead of retaining it. Well, that's one way to get the title off him and onto Sheamus and still do the match at WrestleMania. You can do that in a triple threat scenario. So, just a thought as I look at this about how I think things might possibly play out. Miz was very despondent on this show over losing his Money in the Bank contract. Had a match with Grand Metalik. Lost to Grand Metalik, which the announcers treated like a completely embarrassing defeat for the Miz. Here's my question for you. I can understand why the announcers would, uh, you know, basically mock Metal League. Oh my God, what a what an upset. What a huge loss for The Miz. Really? Have you seen the way The Miz has been booked for months now? Like a fucking loser? Is it really that much of a stretch that Miz would lose to Metal League? I mean, he's almost been on Metal League's level. He gets more TV time than Metal League does. What makes it such a big upset? The fact that he used to be WWE champion 10 fucking years ago? <laughs> they made it sound like, you know, you had this... Uh, Truly top guy in WWE losing to Grand Metalik. And I thought, boy, you know, who, who's the who's the loser here? I know they want you to think Metalik is, but uh, I don't know if I agree with that. 
And it shouldn't be that way. Metalik is a fantastic wrestler. He had a great match, remember, on SmackDown many months ago for the Intercontinental title against uh, AJ Styles. And look, I knew that was going to be a short push. I didn't expect their you know, big things for Grand Metalik coming out of the match or that he was going to win the title. But he is getting a Cruiserweight title match on NXT at their New Year's Evil show this week against Santos Escobar. And that is going to be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, but the reality with Metalik is that not speaking English is a killer. It's an absolute killer. And the fact that we haven't had a chance to see him show any kind of personality on TV, maybe he's got no personality. Maybe he just goes in there and he just, you know, he flies all over the place and he can wrestle. But I don't know. Maybe there's nothing really underneath for the, for us to see on TV. We wouldn't know because they don't push him because they don't obviously have any plans to do that. So they're not going to devote TV time to him. And, of course, if they ever did, the only thing we would see is him playing with fucking pinatas and shit, which is what Lucha House Party used to come out with. That's what they think of the luchadors. Remember the Mexicals would ride to the ring on a fucking lawnmower? What do you think? WWE has gotten so much more progressive in the 15 years since then? Give me a fucking break. That is what they think of these people. They ride to the ring on lawnmowers. They come out with a pinata. Someone like Grand Metalik, he he's never going to get any kind of big push. But the the not speaking English thing, if you're in WWE, as we have seen, that, I think, more than anything, is an absolute killer. And whether you agree with that or not, it doesn't matter, but that's just the way it is. But don't let that discount the fact that Grand Metalik in the ring, if you've seen this guy work, is probably top five that they have in that entire company. He probably is. Uh, later in the show, Adam Pierce. He did return the money in the bank contract to The Miz, which is exactly what I feared was going to happen coming out of TLC. Returned on a technicality, because it was John Morrison who cashed in at the pay-per-view, and not Miz. The fact that they would give it back to The Miz, can you imagine giving... So The Miz has money in the bank. He's already booked to look like a fucking loser on TV, going back to the stuff they did with him and Morrison and Braun Strowman earlier in the year. Okay, okay. I don't care what he's done in the past. He'll be in the Hall of Fame one day and all that. He's a fucking loser on TV. He wins Money in the Bank, continues to be a loser, which they've done with other Money in the Bank winners before because, well, they got the briefcase so we can beat them. So he looks like an even bigger loser. He cashes in. He loses, which is what he does. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now he gets it back. Imagine if he loses it again. There ain't no coming back from that. So that's why I'm a little afraid. The fact that they gave it back to him. 
Are they really just going to have him lose it again? Or did they give it back to him because he actually is going to cash in and win at some point? I hope not. I hope not. Alexa Bliss was on the swing set in the ring. Randy Orton popped up on the screen in the funhouse. He found the funhouse. Only the second person, I think, right? Seth Rollins was the other one to find the Firefly Funhouse. I guess John Cena did too, uh, before his match with Bray. There are rumors, by the way, that that is going to be the stipulation for their match at the Royal Rumble. Bray is coming back. Burnt burnt, uh, to a crisp or not, he is coming back. They are probably going to have a Firefly Funhouse match at the Royal Rumble. That is the belief at this point. The Fiend won the first one, right? He beat John Cena at WrestleMania last year, so if it's that same kind of match... Uh, if they do another one, then I, I have to think he would win that one too, especially after he lost at TLC. Uh, I can only imagine what kind of classic shit they're going to dig up. They'll have Randy Orton coming out uh, to his old theme music or something. <laughs> imagine the acid trip that'll be. If they do a Firefly Funhouse match with Randy Orton coming out, he's like walking out to burn in my light, which I know he hates. He hates his old theme song. Uh, they really want to shock people. He'll walk out wearing pants. There's so many different things you could do. Like, you can have a, a gym bag sitting and Orton's, like, tiptoeing over to it, doesn't know what's inside, and there's, like, a pile of fucking shit in there, and <laughs> he walks into, like, a hotel room that's all damaged and destroyed. There's so many fun things that they could play off of in the in the career. The very controversial, at times, career of... Randy Orton. Uh, we had another Alexa tease in this segment, by the way. She was talking about Legends Night. Maybe The Fiend will come back on Legends Night. He, she mentioned Hulk Hogan. And that Hulk Hogan is The Fiend's hero. Which, I mean, the fact, if you think about what The Fiend represents, all the evil that The Fiend represents, I don't know if that's maybe like an inside rib on Hogan. That they would say that, uh, you know, Hogan is his hero or what. But uh, here I thought IRS was his hero. I was I was shocked to find out that it's Hogan and not Erwin R. Scheister who's going to be there too. IRS is going to be at Legends Night. He was uh, one of the people who was let go by WWE last year. Actually, they let him go on tax day. They let him go on tax day. You can't tell me that was not done intentionally. But IRS is going to be there tomorrow night. Maybe he'll take a bump for Bray. Maybe The Fiend will beat up IRS. I'll be taking a bump for IRS in a few months. I'm going to be doing the job to the IRS in a few months. I'm not looking forward to that. I talked about Ricochet's interview last week on Raw Talk. I actually defended him and the emotion that he poured out in that interview. I think he was drawing on real emotion and real frustrations that he has to have. In terms of how he has been pushed and used in this company so far. Um, and I pitched an idea that I said, look, Ricochet has so much to offer. You can really tap into what it is that this guy does best. But you got to hit the reset button. If you want to salvage Ricochet, if you want to save Ricochet on the main roster, you've got to hit the reset button and start over again. And I pitched an idea for that. Well, it looks like we're in for more of the same. But Ricochet and Mustafa Ali, they had the best match on the show this week. Not a surprise if you saw any of their matches on main event, which I'm sure uh, almost none of you did. But they had some matches on main event last year that were very good. Ricochet went for a shooting star press. Ali got his knees up 
And uh, he locked on the Koji clutch. He put Ricochet out. Nighty night. After the match, Ali wanted to know if Ricochet had made a decision. Uh, whether or not he was going to join Retribution. And Ricochet said that he had made a decision. And he said that he will not join Retribution. And then he hit the recoil and he ran away when Retribution came after him. Ricochet on Raw Talk said that he was tired of losing. Remember that? Remember that Raw Talk segment? He wasn't on Raw Talk again, I don't think. This is the one from a couple of weeks ago. On that show, he said, I'm tired of losing. Something's got to change. I'm tired of losing. So what does he do? He comes out here and he loses again. One recoil does not change that. He needs a reset. I want to see Mr. Recoil have a rebound in 2021. But that is never going to happen if he just continues to tread water and lose matches every week. So then we had at the very end of the show, a segment in the ring with Alexa Bliss and Randy Orton. And Alexa, who was very disturbed by Randy destroying the funhouse and ripping, you know, Ramblin' Rabbit's head off and doing all these horrible things, she had a gift box and unwrapped the gift box and in the box was a small gas can and a box of matches. And she poured what very clearly was water all over herself from the gas can and she put the box of matches at Orton's feet and basically was begging him, was telling him to go ahead and do to her what he had done to the Fiend at TLC and set her ablaze. And, you know, I, I don't I don't get offended by a lot of... Well, I take that back. I get offended by stuff on this show all the time, but not because I get offended at things. I get offended because some of the booking is so fucking... Hero- just absolutely horrendous. But... It takes a lot to kind of make me look at something on the show and go, oh man, I'm offended by that. I wouldn't say I was offended by this, but because she is portraying this very childlike gimmick, and I think she does a great job with it. I thought she did a great job on this show too. Now, you may not like this angle. You may think it's the dumbest fucking thing that you've ever seen, and you are well within your rights to think that because, boy, do I have to suspend my disbelief when I watch this. But for the part that she's playing on TV, I think Alexa's doing a bang-up job. But she she comes across very childlike, and there is something very disturbing about watching her stand there. And I don't know how many kids, young kids, are still watching Raw at uh, 10.58 at night. I don't know, I don't, shit, I don't know how many little kids are watching Raw, period, even at 8 o'clock these days. But to see her pouring what's supposed to be gasoline, kerosene, all over herself, threatening to set herself on fire... If I were a parent watching this, I would probably be a little bit disturbed. And depending on how young my child was, I probably would be hiding the matches if I had any in the house. It is it is a little, I don't know, it is a bit much, but Orton wouldn't do it. Orton wouldn't do it. He just stared at her, he just watched her. She called him a bitch, which is their go-to word on these shows, right? Didn't we hear Kevin Owens called Roman Reigns the same thing on Friday night? He called him a bitch. Alexa Bliss here called Randy Orton a bitch. Boy, you know, I can play that game too. Hey, Vince McMahon, step aside, bitch. There, see how easy that was? But I mean, watching Alexa, she's standing there in this puddle. There is a puddle under her feet. 
She is standing in a puddle, and I'm watching this, and I'm just thinking to myself, look, I'm sure a lot of the ladies out there find Randy Orton to be very handsome. But come on now. This is too much. Control yourself. Orton is, uh, he is now a, a murderous pyromaniac. I guess that is his new gimmick. He said, you don't think I'll do it. He took the matches, and he lit the match. And the fiend lights started to kind of go out and the sound effects and everything. And the show had a a cliffhanger with Orton holding a lit match and the announcers begging him not to. And they cut to black. And so we're left to believe, well, did Randy Orton set Alexa Bliss on fire or didn't he? That was the big cliffhanger coming out of the show. I'm still not sure who, as the viewer, who are we supposed to be rooting for in this? None of these people are likable. Randy Orton is a prick. The Fiend, I mean, the guy's name is the fucking Fiend for crying out loud. I mean, I don't know what what he's done that's supposed to get us to want to cheer for him. I don't just am I am I the only person who feels like I don't want to see any of these people succeed? If it were up to me, I would stuff them all in a crate and I would launch them into a volcano. Better yet, maybe we could take this entire show and stuff it into a crate and launch it into a volcano. Maybe we can crowdfund. We can make it happen. But who the hell are we supposed to be rooting for in this feud? I have no idea. Over on SmackDown, the Kevin Owens-Roman Reigns story continues despite all of the losses that Kevin Owens has amassed in recent weeks, all of which really have been due to the interference of Jey Uso. So he does have that as kind of his built-in excuse. But Owens is still in the mix. And they've had a a nice feud going. I don't mind them extending it into the Royal Rumble, which isn't official yet, but clearly it is headed in that direction. Uh, We'll talk about the big show closing angle here in a minute. But we had Big E, one-on-one against Baron Corbin. This was non-title. Ended very quickly when Sami Zayn, who was on commentary, ran in for the DQ. And it led to uh, Zayn and Corbin and Corbin's Knights of the Douche all ganging up on Big E. Until Apollo Crews ran down to the ring to make the save. It was Crews who tackled Sami Zayn a few weeks ago. And they had the lumberjack match. Sami was trying to get away. And Crews tackled him on the stage and helped uh, deposit him back into the ring. And Big E went on to win the IC title. So it kind of made sense for him to be the one to come out here and make the save. And it turned into a tag team match. Big E and Apollo against Corbin and Zayn which ended with Cruz pinning Corbin, or uh, rather Cruz pinning Zayn. Corbin had walked out on Sammy. So backstage after the match, Big E and Cruz, they're kind of yucking it up, walking along, overcomes Kayla Braxton to interview Big E. And I love this. This was great. I loved all of the little tributes to Brody Lee. Big E has been devastated, more, more than most. Devastated by Brody Lee's death. I didn't realize how close the two of them had become when Lee was still in WWE. Uh, Big E has just been tweeting about him nonstop and dropping references to, to Brody Lee. And on SmackDown, he had the Brody Lee armband on. He told Kayla that, you know, ever since he won the Intercontinental Championship, he's had fans celebrating with him from Rome to Rochester, which is Lee's hometown. He said that he's got... All these fans, all these little Amandas and Nolans coming up to him to show him so much love. Of course, Amanda being Brody's widow, Nolan being uh, his youngest son. 
He said, much like the 1967 Toronto Maple Leafs, I will be a fighting champion. And the Maple Leafs were Brody Lee's favorite team. And 1967 is the last time that they won the Stanley Cup, which also happens to be the longest current drought of all the teams in the NHL. I know it took the Rangers 54 years to win their last Stanley Cup. I used to have a framed uh, Rangers poster of that 94 team on my wall many, many years ago. It was a big deal in New York when the Rangers finally won the uh, Stanley Cup. So that was 54 years. I think that the Maple Leafs are going to tie us. They'll uh, They'll tie New York if they don't win this year, which does not seem very likely to happen. But anyway, this led to Big E issuing an open challenge for next week. And Apollo Crews, who was standing right next to him, was very quick to accept. And he pointed out that, you know, he kind of did help Big E win the championship in the first place. So he's like, you know, how are you going to do when you don't have me there to help you out? And then he started laughing and Big E started laughing. It was like that nervous laughter, this uh, underlying tension between them. I, I mean, I like that. I like that they didn't ignore the, Apollo's role in that Lumberjack match. And it should be a good match on Friday. I don't expect the title change, but it should be a good match. Look, Big E needs people to beat. Yeah, you've got somebody like Apollo Cruz right there on the roster. Why not get him involved in the mix? Joey on Twitter uh, pointed out to me that there may be more African-American champions right now at this moment in WWE than at any other point in the history of the company. And I I hadn't thought about that, and I, I can't say that for sure, but he's probably right. I mean, think about it. We got Big E as the Intercontinental Champion. We've got Lashley as the United States Champion. We've got Sasha Banks as the SmackDown Women's Champion. We've got the Street Profits as the SmackDown Tag Team Champions. We've got the Hurt Business as the Raw Tag Team Champions. And I was going to say we have R-Truth as the 24-7 Champion, but he lost that title to Angel Garza in a segment that they taped backstage, I guess, last week, and they aired it on, I guess, TikTok had some kind of official New Year's party or New Year's stream. And I guess they aired it on the TikTok New Year's stream. But, you know, by the time some of you listen to this, I'm sure that R-Truth is going to already have the belt back. So let's throw R-Truth on that list as well. So yeah, I'm guessing Joey is right. And that's a record for that many champions at once. And hey, Keith Lee is challenging for the WWE title tomorrow night. Will they add another? The Riot Squad... Picked up a win over Natalia and Tamina. There was some comedy here with Billy Kay. That is her role now. Because uh, Billy Kay was outside the ring, getting involved and being very annoying and distracting. I don't really care about any of this, but I bring this up because they have made a slight tweak to Natty's theme music. It is the same music that she's been using for years. She's got the opening guitar riff like Bret Hart's song had. I mean, the, the song itself is really not any different. But it sounds like they've added a drum beat to it. And I actually think it sounds a lot better. I like it. I actually like it a lot. Sasha Banks and Bianca Belair, they teamed again. Their second time teaming up together on TV. Hopefully a sign of them eventually working on opposite sides of the ring at WrestleMania this year. After uh, Bianca wins the Royal Rumble. 
But they lost to Bailey and Carmella after Carmella's uh, sommelier got involved again. He distracted Sasha, who popped him in the face. But when she turned around, Carmella hit a float over face buster and she pinned the SmackDown Women's Champion. And that should earn her one more match against Sasha Banks at the Royal Rumble, which is looking like a, a night of rematches right now, at least on the SmackDown side. Carmella looked good in her last match with Sasha. I think she impressed a lot of people. It, it might have been the best match of her career, honestly. So if they want to run that back one more time, I don't see any obvious other opponent for Sasha to kind of run through at the Rumble right now. So if they are going to do that, then uh, I have no issue with that. But the big news on the show was that Sonya Deville is back. She's back on WWE television. She is back on the SmackDown brand. And with no explanation at all, nothing yet, after losing a loser-leaves-WWE match back at SummerSlam to Mandy Rose, they showed her walking through the backstage area, and all the wrestlers were kind of lined up, just kind of standing around. Because I guess that's what they do backstage at these shows. Everybody just stands around like an idiot. So they're all standing around, and I did I did spy uh, Big E... To come back to him again, he was wearing a Bludgeon Brothers t-shirt, which was very cool. It would be cool. I could see him going into like four different wardrobe changes throughout the night just to try to get himself into camera frame for different segments, wearing a different Brody Lee shirt each time. But there she was. She never cut a promo or said anything. They just showed her walking. and It was like, wow, look at this, Sonya Deville. And they had Corey Graves. On commentary, all he said was that she has been reinstated to the SmackDown roster. And that was it. And they're going to have to do a better job than that. You know, it's weird. I just, I literally just answered a question from somebody on the New Year's stream on Thursday night who sent in an email question asking me, you know, how would you book a Sonya Deville return to WWE and then boom 24 hours later she is back on TV that is that is eerie uh, now my idea for those who missed the stream was and I didn't know when she would even be coming back I didn't expect her back this soon I mean I know she's been gone for a few months but I thought she would be gone a little bit longer so my idea was look uh, you've got a match that seems to be building you know Sasha, or not Sasha, but Asuka and Charlotte, I think we may be headed for a WrestleMania rematch between those two. And if so, I would hope Asuka can avenge her loss from WrestleMania 34 and she can get a big win over Charlotte. And the night after WrestleMania, which in the past has been reserved for a big return or a big debut, or some big angles, you have Sonya Deville show up, unannounced, and she beats the crap out of Asuka and leaves her laying and makes a statement in her first night back that she is now going to be on Monday Night Raw, which is the same brand that Mandy Rose is on. I would still keep them on the same brand, even if they're not doing anything together at first. But right out of the gate, after Asuka has just dispatched of everybody with any kind of name in that Raw women's division, now Sonya Deville is back. And now she has the chance to really shine on her own. Because character-wise, she was doing the best work of her career before that SummerSlam match, before she went away. You know, and in the ring, she she's fine. But, I mean, as far as the heel work that she was doing over the summer, that was the best stuff she's done her entire life. 
And it's a shame that that momentum had to stall, but I'd like to see her kind of get back into that. So that was my idea. Very basic, but I thought that would be a good spot for her to be in, and I would have moved her over to the other brand, but I would have at least tried to explain or had her come on TV and explain how it is that she lost a loser leaves town match, but suddenly she's back on TV. I would have at least made some kind of attempt, either for her or the announcers or Adam Pierce or somebody to explain to the audience. I know we've been conditioned to just think that these stipulations don't mean a fucking thing. And uh, in my foolishness, I would like for them to at least try to explain things. Say that Mandy, for example, Mandy Rose. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today. Day to has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Allowed her to come back. You know, so Sonia wanted to come back, but they needed Mandy's permission. Despite all their bad blood and all their history together, Mandy Rose was Yeah, she was the she was the bigger person, and she told WWE management that she didn't mind if they welcome back Sonia Deville. Or say that Sonia had to take a pay cut to come back or something. She's gonna have to earn her keep. She's gonna have to prove herself. This woman took a, a you know, her pay was cut in half. Something. Something. We haven't gotten that return promo yet. Maybe it'll happen on TV this week. But the way that Corey Graves just kind of threw it out there on commentary makes me think they're not going to say anything. <laughs> it's just that, well, she's back. She was gone. It wasn't a loser leaves for a few months. Loser takes a vacation. It was loser leaves the company. But I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see if they bother to say anything about it this week. Uh, I still, but so what makes this even more interesting, though, is the fact that now, all of a sudden, you had, I thought before, you had two choices that realistically could have or should have won that Women's Royal Rumble. The one I would go with and the one I would still go with, which is uh, Bianca Belair to set up the match with Sasha Banks. You could go with Bailey if you wanted to go with her because she and Sasha still have not had that elusive WrestleMania match. If you want to kind of put a button on that whole feud, I don't think you need to. I really don't think it's necessary, but I suppose you could do that. You could have Bailey win the Royal Rumble and say, you're not done with me yet, Sasha, and we get the big, you know, WrestleMania match in the big stadium. But all of a sudden, with Sonya Deville being back, you've got to put her on that list as a possibility to win the Royal Rumble and have Sonya Deville go on to be the one to challenge Sasha for the championship at WrestleMania. Right? I mean, I would still go with Bianca. That way, whoever wins at Mania between her and Sasha, and and Sasha may retain. But whoever wins at WrestleMania then would have a strong heel challenger in Sonya Deville 
coming out of that show. So I haven't changed my mind on who I think should win, but now you've got to put Sonya's name on the list as you think about, okay, who realistically could win or should win the Women's Royal Rumble? Uh, It just so happens that all three women come from the SmackDown. I'm not even thinking about any of the women from the Raw brand because, I mean, that division to me is in just fucking shambles. So the three women that I pick as possibilities for that Rumble win all come from SmackDown. There was a terribly unfunny Street Profits segment in the ring. They were doing their New Year's smoke-tacular. I didn't see Matt Riddle anywhere. But thankfully, Dolph Ziggler and Bobby Roode showed up. And who the fuck ever thought you would hear me utter those words? Thank God for Dolph Ziggler and Bobby Roode. They did an injury angle with Montez Ford where they uh, attacked his leg and they beat on his leg with a steel chair over and over again. Then in the back, Kayla Braxton cornered them for an interview. And they talked about wanting to go after the SmackDown Tag Team titles. They were wearing t-shirts with the with a logo and a name that said Dirty Dogs. D-A-W-G-S. <laughs> God. Um, like Dudley Boys with a Z at the end or Hardy Boys. At least with the Hardy Boys, they were young guys, right? That was the thing at the time. I don't know. Dolph Ziggler and Bob, how old are they now? They're both over 40. I think both of them are either 40 or north of 40 years old. If that's going to be their name, do they really have to be dogs? D-A-W-G-S? I mean, I don't know. But it looks like that may be their new name. I think Dolph may have said it in the promo, but it was on their shirts. So that may be their new team name. It's interesting, you know, first Bobby Roode was part of the Dirty Heels in TNA with Austin Aries. Great team, by the way. Now he's part of the Dirty Dogs with Dolph Ziggler. And it occurred to me that that TNA run, uh, you know, was part of the Dirty Heels, came around the same time that Bruce Pritchard was in charge of creative. So maybe it is Bruce who has some kind of obsession with the word dirty. Like he's uh, done some of the booking in recent months. He's done the booking dirty. Maybe it was his idea. Doesn't change the fact that they have no tag team division on that brand. I mean, even even when they get Jimmy Uso back, which could be happening any week now, Jimmy in August said that he was hopeful to be back in January. And guess what? It's January. So I think you're going to start to hear about Jimmy Uso or maybe he'll just pop up on TV one day. He's probably going to be back very, very soon. Even when they get him back, they'll have the Usos, the Street Profits, the Dirty Dogs, and they'll have Cesaro and Nakamura. And I guess, I don't know, Corbin's Knights of the Douche, if we ever see them wrestle on TV, which we haven't yet. Maybe I guess they could be a team in that division. They could always make Otis and Chad Gable more of a regular team. I mean, if you do that, then you'll have at least a a decent number. I still can't say that. I mean, that is still a very just (laughs) god-awful tag team division. I'm sorry. Uh, But at least then you'd have a few more teams if if they did that. You still got to add teams. I mean, even the NXT tag team division is not overly strong, but you got to find a team or two from somewhere to try to boost that division. I told you what they need to do. I've said it over and over again. They're not going to do it. They're not going to merge the two divisions. 
They're not going to do it. They absolutely should. They absolutely should merge them and have one set of champions that floats. Just like they do with the women's tag team titles. I don't know why they don't just do it with the men. But they're not going to. So this is what you're left with. The uh, title match is official for this Friday. It will be Ziggler and Rude challenging the Street Profits. Uh, I'm thinking we're going to get a title change, if for no other reason, because they did that injury angle with Montez Ford. That seems to me like they've just given them a built-in excuse to lose. So I think we're going to get new champions on Friday night. Otis and Daniel Bryan teamed up on this show, speaking of tag teams. To beat Cesaro and Shinsuke Nakamura. You know, Brian tapped out Nakamura. And the stuff they did together when they were in the ring, it was it was good. But remember when Shinsuke first came to this country and first came to WWE? He said the reason, or one of the reasons he even came here in the first place, was to wrestle Daniel Bryan. And then Bryan ended up having to retire early and they never got to do their big match when he first came over. He credited that as being one of the reasons why he even came here in the first place. Brian wanted to work so badly with Nakamura. Uh, this is going back now probably, I don't know, six years maybe, six, seven years. He even pitched the idea to Vince McMahon of doing a champion versus champion inter-brand match when he was the IC champion and Nakamura was the intercontinental champion in New Japan. Obviously, yeah, he got the obvious answer to his request. But they both wanted that match badly. I wanted the match. A lot of fans were were dying to see that match. And now you see these two in the ring together. And we've seen it a few times now. But you see them in the ring together and it doesn't even feel special. It doesn't even feel like a big deal. Nakamura has been beaten so many times. I mean, he lost to fucking Otis in three minutes a few weeks ago. But he's just been beaten so much that, you know, I don't know. He's just He's just another guy now. But... This was something for Brian to do here on this show. It gave him a win. They're really building him up for the Royal Rumble match. And in the main event, Kevin Owens beat Jay Uso with the stunner. He then handcuffed Jay to the ropes. He was beating him up. Then he uncuffed him. He brought him over by the side of the uh, Thunderdome. The uh, Thunderdome area with all the with all the fan screens. Roman Reigns attacked him from behind. He was up in the uh, in the stands. So we got this visual for the first time since they started these Thunderdome shows of these guys brawling in the stands. And the screens are right there behind them. So it was kind of a cool visual. And then at the end, uh, Roman threw Owens off the... St- not the stage, but off the stands, off, you know, whatever, whatever row they were in. And he took a decent-sized drop down through two tables down below. But, you know, Owens is constantly getting his ass handed to him every single week. And normally I would say this, well, this has got to end with the babyface winning in the end. I mean, Kevin Owens is never say die. He will not quit. He will not stay down. He keeps coming back and back. Under any other circumstance, I would say this has to be building and it should be building to a big title win for him. But it just doesn't feel like it's the right time to do. I mean, look, you could take the title off Roman Reigns and put it right back on him at the next pay-per-view. I don't see what that accomplishes. I don't see what it accomplished having Randy Orton win the title. Only to drop it right back to Drew. And even even interrupting Drew's first run, uh, run with the belt. I think somebody had written into to me uh, via email and said, well, Roman Reigns' return may have had something to do with that. He, he thought that Orton was supposed to win at SummerSlam, maybe. 
But plans changed, and so it kind of threw everything off. Maybe. Maybe. But even still, I, I look back now, and I don't know. I mean, what was the point of even doing that other than just to do a title change? Just so they can maybe pop a number and do a big title change on Raw. So, look, people people forget. People romanticize the Attitude Era and the stuff with Rock and Mankind and Austin and all those people, right, that everybody loves to talk about. Oh, I wish it could go back to that. And they forget that the title played Hot Potato a lot in 98 and 99. And they did plenty of those things where you took the title off somebody and then a few weeks later they got it back. And then they lost it again. And then they got it back. And, you know, the television back then was doing tremendous numbers because, hey, let's we could do a title change. It's going to be a big deal. It isn't always the, the wisest move to make. There's got to be a reason for it. You give Kevin Owens a big moment. But to then just drop it immediately right back to Roman Reigns, does that take some of the shine off Roman and what he's trying to do as he goes into whatever his match is going to be at WrestleMania? I think it does. I think part of the story is that this guy comes out and he's totally dominant. And whoever his WrestleMania opponent is going to be, and I already told you who I hope it isn't and who it should be, I think it hurts the story a little bit if he's already been beaten. If you've already had a babyface who has beaten him. Roman has to stay dominant. They have to build every babyface challenger. Is this going to be the guy to do it? Is this going to be the guy to finally take the title away from this guy? And that means that Kevin Owens has to lose again. He's going to end up being a three-time loser. NXT on Wednesday was the final show of 2020. And the final show before New Year's Evil this Wednesday, which I'm going to run down uh, in a few minutes here and give my uh, predictions on that. That's going to run head-to-head with AEW's New Year's Smash, Night 1. We have the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic coming back in two weeks with the winners getting an NXT Tag Team Championship match. They did not say when. Probably because they don't even know if they're doing a TakeOver show WrestleMania weekend. I think everything WrestleMania related, frankly, is is still kind of in flux and uh, up in the air at this point. Throughout the show, they cut to William Regal announcing winners of the NXT year-end awards. Which, according to Vic Joseph on commentary, these awards were voted on by the Performance Center coaches, WWE Hall of Famers and Legends, and and I quote, this is what he said, members of the wrestling media. Nobody sent me a ballot. Am I not wrestling media? I don't have a blue check mark, so I guess I don't count. Shotzi Blackheart won for Breakout Star of the Year, which I would agree with. I mean, Shotzi is... It's hard for me to say Shotzi's so over. I think she is. But remember, we're not seeing shows in front of actual audience. I mean, now at the at the COVID Coliseum, they have like 100 people or whatever there. So they have some fans. But it is hard to tell who's really over and who's not when you don't have actual people in the audience. And they're pretty much directing all of the reactions. But I, I think if they were in front of people, I think Shotzi would be over big time. You know, she puts it all out there. She puts herself at more risk than she should in a lot of her matches. Uh, But Shotzi really did break out as one of the big uh, stars of NXT in 2020. So I think that's a a fine choice. Undisputed Era won for Tag Team of the Year. 
And Adam Cole announced that he and Roderick Strong will be repping UE in this year's Dusty Classic. Female competitor of the year was Io Shirai, who is the NXT Women's Champion, no debate there. Adam Cole won for Male Competitor of the Year, which makes sense. He was the champion through uh, half the year, right? July 1st, was it, that he dropped the belt to Keith Lee? Match of the Year was Finn Balor defending the NXT Championship at TakeOver 31 against Kyle O'Reilly, which beat out, among other choices, among other matches, they did include NXT UK stuff. Uh, One of the choices was the Walter title defense against Ilya Dragunov from NXT UK. So I disagree with this decision. I'll just say that. Future star of the year was Austin Theory who is going to go on, I think, to become a big star. Really no doubt about that. Clearly, they feel the same way. Uh, Event of the year was TakeOver War Games. Rivalry of the year was Adam Cole against Pat McAfee. And overall competitor of the year was Io Shirai. So those were your NXT year-end awards from WWE coaches and all of the wrestling media. Not including us lowly podcasters. Bronson Reed got a win over Isaiah Swerve Scott. Reed is going to be another one to watch this year. NXT has a few people to watch this year. Uh, Shotzi, frankly, in, in the women's division is one of them. Raquel Gonzalez is another. Uh, Dexter Loomis. And I think you got to put Bronson Reed on that list. Big guy who can do some some impressive stuff. He, got, he gets some height, too, on that. Uh, tsunami splash of his. He's a big guy too. So when he comes down, all that weight crashing down, it, it's a great visual. I mean, it's, you know, we see the Usos doing super fly splashes and stuff, but they're not, they're not big like Bronson Reed. I think he's in for uh, bigger things this year. We had one final vignette, the cinematic vignettes, very Lucha Underground-esque involving Zia Lee and Boa and this mystery woman. This Wednesday at New Year's Evil, they're going to be there. So, Zia Lee, let me just say this. Zia Lee is another one. I'll put her on my breakout list, I think, for this year. Zia Lee looks incredible. She has gotten herself just in the best shape of her life. She trains like a beast. You should find the Celtic Warrior workout video that Seamus did on his YouTube channel with her. I think it was last year, maybe the year before, but I think it was early last year. Because he interviews uh, different wrestlers and he he interviews them for 10, 15, 20 minutes and then they launch into whatever that person's workout is. Sheamus will do it with them. And I became a big fan of, of a lot of the stuff he put out on that channel. And he did a video where he did Zia Lee's workout with her at the Performance Center. I think that's the video where in the middle, <laughs> in the middle of it, they were doing something where they were kind of... Uh, upside down, like on their heads with their legs up against the wall and Seamus like farted in her face or something. I don't know, but, <laughs> uh, she, she's, she's crazy. You know, she, she really does. She trains like a beast and, uh, hopefully this whole thing is, is going to pay off for her because I have enjoyed these segments, even though I have no idea where it's going. If the woman, yeah, this mystery woman, if it is Karen Q, is she? Is, are they going to be doing tag matches? Or, I mean, for all the time they've invested into these vignettes uh, and maybe even some money, I would certainly hope it means that they have uh, big plans for for Boa and for Xia Li. 
Squash win for Mercedes Martinez, the luckiest and smartest woman in all the land, in all of the WWE universe, the wisest of them all, is Mercedes Martinez. This was her first match since September when she lost to Rhea Ripley inside the steel cage. Pete Dunn got a win over Roderick Strong with the bitter end. Very good match. I saw the reports of NXT opting not to bring back Pat McAfee until April or sometime in the in the spring. Uh, that it was their call and not his. And I don't know if they just... Maybe, you know what? It is funny to me that we hear about this coming out of the comments that CM Punk made on Twitter. That everybody on the NXT roster should be embarrassed and ashamed that this guy who had no real prior wrestling experience came in and was doing their job, at least on promos, was doing their job better than them. Because he's not wrong. I mean, Pat McAfee came in and on day one, he became the best promo in all of NXT. And even in the ring, he impressed people with that Adam Cole match. But on the mic, nobody could touch him. And now it's like, well, NXT is opting not to bring him back for a while. You know, it, he is. He, he really, he brought a uh, certain life to the show. I think it's fine to keep him off TV for a little bit so you don't get tired of him. Uh, but it does, I think it does hurt the show a little bit not having him around. The one good thing it might do is it might give uh, someone like Pete Dunne a chance to just kind of stand on his own, not be in the background, not be in the shadows behind McAfee. Uh, but really try to break out uh, on his own and they can, you know, build him up. And they did tease something as he was coming to the back. He was walking down the steps on the side of the stage and Finn Balor was getting ready to come out to the ring. And so they kind of passed each other and they shared a little, uh, a few words and they shared a, a glare. So that could be the sign of something to come. They had a face-to-face in the ring with Finn Balor and Kyle O'Reilly talking about their big win in the year-end awards, their match being picked as match of the year. Actually, that now that I think about it, I don't know that anybody in that company necessarily thinks that this was better than Walter and Dragunov, but they probably did that so they could set this segment up. <laughs> now it kind of makes sense. And I'm not saying it was a bad match. Balor and O'Reilly had an, had an excellent match, but uh, I think if, th- if it was a legitimate vote amongst people who even work there in that company, I think Walter and Dragunov would have won. Walter and Dragunov, they put on WWE's own YouTube channel a video with Shawn Michaels, and there may have been other coaches or something, but I know it was with Shawn Michaels, who obviously is intimately involved with NXT and NXT UK, showing the match. Actually, you know what? It might have been uh, McIntyre and Sheamus as well, but they actually had them watch the match back and comment on it because it was so friggin' great. I didn't see them doing that for Finn Balor and Kyle O'Reilly. But they gave them the award so they can get them out to the ring and they can talk about the award and talk about their rematch coming up at New Year's Evil this Wednesday. I thought O'Reilly was great. O'Reilly is one of these guys, you know what, he's kind of like Daniel Bryan. He's got very Daniel Bryan-esque tendencies in that he was doing some comedy stuff, right, with the with Adam Cole on the, or not Adam Cole, Roderick Strong on the couch, and he was the psychiatrist, right? He could be funny, he could strum the air guitar, he can make the funny faces, but he can also get serious. Just like Daniel Bryan, he could be funny, he could do the Team Hell No stuff, and he could be all goofy, but he could also get serious and cut an incredible promo. And this was the best promo work I've ever seen. Out of Kyle O'Reilly in this segment, he was serious, he was showing fire, 
he said, look, this this award, it's like a participation award. I'm not here just to participate. I'm here to win. I'm here to prove that I can be where you are. I want that title. You have it. I want it. I'm out for something to prove. And so I thought he did uh, a tremendous job. And then Balor, you know, had some words for him. So they're they're going to go out there and they're going to they're going to kill it. I am still well. I'll get to the predictions here in a second. I I have a thought about what may happen there. But I wanted to talk about this because I don't see enough people talking about this. And this was the best thing I outside of the AEW show, which was obviously special in its own way. This may have been the best fucking thing I saw on TV all week. It was a video package. It wasn't even a match. It was a video package to hype up the last woman standing match at New Year's Evil this Wednesday between Rhea Ripley and Raquel Gonzalez. This was incredible. This felt like the build-up to a pay-per-view main event. And whoever put this video together deserves a raise. They did a tremendous... It looked... You know what it was? It looked and it sounded like a movie trailer. That's what it... That's what it felt like watching this. It felt like a movie trailer, right down to the dramatic music in the background. Now, my question is, this video was showing us that Raquel and Rhea have been best friends now ever since the two of them came together at the PC. And I mean, they're they're like legit best friends. So they had all of these photos and all of these videos, probably off their cell phones, that they shared of them you know, they, they look like young baby faces. Rhea looked very different when she came in as compared to how she looks now. And even Raquel also looks a little bit different. But they had all this great footage of them and they got matching tattoos on their on their pinky fingers. And I didn't realize that these two were like best friends. And this is not the first time that they're having a match and feuding. So I wondered, why are we only first really learning about this now? I mean, maybe they mentioned on on commentary in passing, though, these two used to be friends. I didn't know that it was to this degree. You would think they were sisters. So I'm not really sure why it took this long for them to actually put something like this together. But you have to watch this video. It's only about three, three and a half minutes. It's on the WWE YouTube channel. You don't even have to go back and watch NXT. Uh, I, I thought this was tremendous. And it really got me uh, in the mood. I was looking forward to the match anyway because I, I really liked their first one. But I may be looking forward more to that match than any other match on the card on NXT this week. So this was... Uh, I can't say enough good things about this video. It really blew me away by how good it was. I wasn't expecting that. Santos Escobar was holding a uh, holding court in the ring, cutting a promo when he was interrupted by the Lucha House Party, and out came Lince Dorado and Grand Metalik. Dorado speaks perfect English, Metalik not so much, so Dorado did all the talking. It ended up becoming a tag team match with uh, Lucha House Party beating Joaquin Wilde and Raul Mendoza, and now we are getting a Cruiserweight Championship match this Wednesday between Grand Metalik and Santos Escobar, which... Is going to be a very fun match to watch. Don't know that I expect a title change. But uh, definitely going to be a match that if it were up to me, I'm going WCW Monday Nitro-like. And I am opening that show on Wednesday night. You want a hot opener? You're up against the big AEW show. You know, Escobar and Metalik, okay, maybe they're not the two 
uh, most uh, high-profile names on the brand. So maybe they want to open with a bigger match. But that's a match where if you let these guys go out there and just do what they do and give them fucking, whatever, 12 minutes, 13 minutes to go out there and just do it, uh, you're going to have a lot of people who I think are not going to be able to turn away from that match. And the curse is over. Johnny Gargano has successfully defended his North American Championship. He did so against Leon Ruff, the former champion. Ruff was on the top rope. He was setting up for a Frankensteiner to Gargano. Gargano reached up and grabbed him by the tights, kind of like The Undertaker would do if he was countering a move in the corner. He was going to give somebody a last ride, powerbomb. So Gargano reached up and he grabbed Ruff, but instead of powerbombing him out of the corner, he just sort of picked him up and dropped him down face first on the top turnbuckle. And hit the one final beat DDT for the win. Gargano retains. And now let's run down this card real quick. New Year's Evil. This Wednesday. Hosted by The Mute. Dexter Loomis. We've got the Cruiserweight Champion Santos Escobar defending against Grand Metalik. I'm going with Escobar for the win. Karrion Cross goes one-on-one against Damian Priest. I actually forgot to mention that during uh, the segment with I think it was Balor and O'Reilly at the end uh Cross had come out and then Damian Priest appeared behind him so they brawled they brawled kind of into the crowd area they ended up falling through a table down below uh so I forgot to mention that but I'm going with Karrion Cross this is his first match back since he lost the NXT actually he didn't lose it he won he won the NXT championship got stripped has not had a match since he can't lose his first match back can't can't do that. So Karrion Cross is going to win this match. We've got the fight pit. Timothy Thatcher one-on-one with Tommaso Ciampa. If anybody on this card is in dire need of a win the most, it is Timothy Thatcher. This guy has got to win. He needs this win. This is his specialty. This is his match. He beat Matt Riddle in the first fight pit. He's got to win this one. So I'm going with Timothy Thatcher. Last woman standing, Rhea Ripley against Raquel Gonzalez. I think Raquel's going to pick up the win. Raquel is the one who pinned Io Shirai in the War Games match. She should be getting a title shot. She's got to beat Rhea to then be able to go on to face Io. I think that's the direction, so I think Raquel gets the win. And Finn Balor defends the NXT Championship in the main event against Kyle O'Reilly. He already beat O'Reilly once. I think he's going to retain the title. It may not even be a straight pinfall win like it was the first time. I can't shake this feeling. And maybe I'm wrong, because Adam Cole has already announced that he and Roddy are going to be in the Dusty Classic. Uh, but I don't maybe the entire group turns on. I just feel like Adam Cole has really been building up. Kyle is going to win the title. Kyle is going to you know get the Undisputed Era back you know, with, with the world title and all this stuff. It just, I don't know. It just feels like there's an Adam Cole turn coming here and he's going to cost, even if it's accidentally, but he's going to cost Kyle O'Reilly the win. Actually, if it happens, it wouldn't be accidental. Or it would be accidentally on purpose. Because Adam Cole, at his core, he's a heel. He's a hateable heel. And I think it just is a case where he can't stand that there's somebody else within his own orbit who is taking the spot that he feels that he should still have. And that maybe people are looking at Undisputed Era not as his group anymore, but Kyle's. 
Remember what set him off with the whole Pat McAfee thing is Pat McAfee on his radio show when they did this angle saying, hey, you know, you can win a match without help from your buddies. And that's what set him off. I could already see the footage in the video package, (laughs) you know, go like the seeds were already planted there. If they want to go down that road, I'm going to I'm going to say that there's an Adam Cole twist here. That's going to be the first fracture within Undisputed Era and Finn Balor retains. And that is your New Year's Evil card, even though I'll be going live on Wednesday night talking Dynamite. I will have my full New Year's Evil review here on the podcast next Sunday. History has been made here! This week in wrestling history, we go back 35 years ago this week on December 30th, 1985. Hulk Hogan. Walked to the ring at Madison Square Garden for his title defense against the macho man Randy Savage to the tune of Real American for the very first time. Savage won the match by countout, coming off the top rope to the floor and hitting Hogan in the head with the belt, waking up the referee to make the count. Hogan had been uh, coming out at that point to Eye of the Tiger. And he was not the first person to use Real American as his theme song, Rick Derringer wrote the song for them for Barry Windham and Mike Rotunda. But when Windham left the company, they were the U.S. Express at that time. But when Windham left the company in October of 85, the song eventually made its way to Hogan. And, oh, how different things would have been had he not left, <laughs> left the company when he did. Real American is still, to this day, my all-time favorite wrestling theme. It is number one. Every time I listen to it, it just it, it, it puts hair on my chest, hair on my balls. It just makes me want to rip my shirt off. But uh, I like this shirt, so I won't do that. 33 years ago, this week, on January 2nd, 1988, WWE aired its 14th installment of Saturday Night's Main Event on NBC, which was taped almost a full month earlier on December 7th. This was the final episode to use the Obsession song by Animotion for the intro. And one of the first angles that a young Solo Monster saw on TV that scared the hell out of me. The first one was, let's see, the first angle that I can remember that really scared me or disturbed me in some way was Randy Savage coming off the top rope to the floor to send poor Ricky Steamboat throat first into the guardrail and then Steamboat clutching his throat, writhing around like he couldn't breathe, and then Savage came off the top, you know, again, uh, in the ring with the ring bell right across the throat. I really thought that Steamboat couldn't breathe, and he was going to die, and it haunted me. Then there was an injury angle that I re- It's funny, the things that we remember. The The other one I remember, which was from around... It's Actually, all of these come from around the same time. This was 87 into 88. This one was from 87 as well, and it came on probably Superstars or Challenge, probably Superstars. And it was an angle uh, that they shot, and I think it ended up being Superstar Billy Graham's final match. But he was wrestling a match on TV. He had tried making a comeback. He he was well past his uh, prime at this point. He had a bad hip. I think he had had uh, surgery on the hip. And they did an angle where Butch Reed... And I forget who else. They were holding him down for the one-man gang to splash him right on the hip a whole bunch of times. 
and he did a stretcher job, and I, I thought that was disturbing, but not as disturbing as this. This was Hulk Hogan. This was the big rematch between Hulk Hogan and King Kong Bundy. This was not a rematch from WrestleMania 2. They had already wrestled a couple of months earlier on another Saturday Night's Made Event special. Uh, Bundy had beaten Hogan in that match by countout when Hogan couldn't make it back into the ring in time because Bobby Heenan uh, grabbed his foot. So Bundy got the win, and he got a title shot here. Andre the Giant was in Bundy's corner. He was wearing a sport coat over a dress shirt, a white dress shirt that was completely soaked. (laughs) He sweated right through the damn thing. And, you know, as Hogan-Big Man matches go back then, I you know, I don't remember the Hogan-Bundy match being that bad. I should go back and watch it. It's been a while. Wasn't a bad match. Hogan, of course, wins. And then dares Andre to come inside. And Andre thinks about it, but then he thinks better of it. He goes to leave. And so Hogan launches into his posing routine, which is what everybody came for back then. They came to see Hulk Hogan pose. And so pose away he did. But as he begins to pose... Andre decides to climb back into the ring and he grabs Hogan by the hair. He headbutts him in the back of the head and he proceeds to choke the life out of this man with those giant hands. And this had a big impact on me as a kid because I really thought he was choking him to death and I couldn't understand why nobody was coming out to stop him until finally the the British Bulldogs, they were the first ones out. They're trying to grab Andre by uh, each arm to pull him off. Andre (laughs) grabs them, he rams their heads together, and then he dumps them out over the top rope like garbage. Then he goes right back to choking Hogan. But then Strike Force came out, and Jake the Snake came out, and Junkyard Dog, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and they're all trying to pull Andre off of Hogan to no avail. So Duggan decides to take his 2x4, And he cracks it right over Andre's back. It doesn't break, but it does piss off the giant. At least uh, distracts him long enough for the others to drag Hogan to safety out of the ring. Now, if you watch, when Duggan gets out of the ring, because he sees Andre's piss, he's like, oh shit, I better get out of here. So when Duggan climbs out of the ring, I don't know if he was supposed to break it over Andre's back and it just didn't break and he was frustrated or what. But he gets out of the ring, he's got the board, right, in his hand, and he just smashes it across the uh, ring apron. And when he does that, if you watch, uh, a piece of the board, a piece of the 2x4, breaks off. And uh, it ricochets into the audience. Like, it flies up into the air and it just goes flying into the crowd. I don't know if it hits somebody or what. Duggan kind of looked back like, oh shit. Uh, So I vividly remember that. Uh, Later in the show, Mean Gene Okerlund provides a medical update on the champion by telling us that doctors thought at one point Hogan may need some kind of breathing apparatus to assist his breathing. And uh, down the road, even possibly a tracheotomy. They almost had to trach the Hulkster because of this dastardly attack by Andre the Giant. Thankfully, though, he was now breathing on his own. But uh, he says he did sustain damage to the windpipe and possibly a crushed larynx. This all built to Hulk Hogan against Andre the Giant for the championship, the big WrestleMania rematch. 
the following month on NBC that had 33 million households tuned in across this country, tuned in at least for a few minutes, maybe not the whole show, 33 million people. Actually, I say households, it could be technically more than 33 million. Tuned in for that match. That is something that will never, ever again be matched. I can confidently say that. That will never, ever happen again. (laughs) And it led to the title being vacated and held up in a tournament at WrestleMania 4. I'll talk more about that show because that is a legendary, historic show. I will talk more about that show when we get there in the history segment next month. Uh, but that 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 twin evil Hebner angle is one of the best that they've ever done. Before Earl Hebner ever screwed Bret Hart, he screwed Hulk Hogan. 25 years ago this week, on New Year's Day, 1996, it's the silver anniversary of the Raw Bowl. The first and only Raw Bowl episode of Monday Night Raw airing on New Year's Day, but it was taped on December 18, 1995. You know, January, the beginning of January, I guess end of December, it's like big big bowl season, right? In football and college sports. And so WWE was trying to play off the whole football theme with their own Raw Bowl. They had on the screen, when they put the names of the announcers, when they had Vince McMahon and Jerry Lawler on screen, they had him listed as Vin McMahon and Jerry... Musburger King, that was the name they gave him. It opened, the show did, with a Raw Bowl match, a four-team elimination match with a ring mat that was made out to look like a football field. All the wrestlers were wearing football jerseys, they had a marching band playing, they had uh, cheerleaders, the smoking guns, Owen Hart and Yoko Zuna, Psycho Sid and the 1-2-3 Kid. And Razor Ramon and Savio Vega. Those were the teams. Each team was given one timeout that they could burn. Earl Hebner was dressed like an NFL official. He uh, was the head linesman, we were told, for the match. Owen Hart at one point refused to get into the ring when he and his uh, tag team partner, Yoko Zuna, were both tagged in. Uh, the rule said, though, that you had to get in the ring and make contact, though, before you could tag out. He didn't want to tag in. Earl Hebner threatened to throw the flag. (laughs) He was going to throw the flag and give him a penalty if he didn't get into the ring, which eventually he did. But the Smoking Guns won the match. They they, uh, had Billy Gunn pin Sid. Vin Vin McMahon screamed touchdown on commentary when he did. Doc Hendricks hosted the halftime report. Jumbo Jim Ross, because of course that's the name they would give him. Jumbo Jim. He was their roving correspondent backstage. They had the presentation of the Lombardi Trophy in the back, which was just Steve Lombardi, the Brooklyn Brawler, giving them some little piece of shit trophy with his face on it, so they all beat him up. (laughs) All the baby faces, they all ganged up on him and beat him up. But also on that show, a young Jeff Hardy could be seen. I didn't see Matt, but a young Jeff Hardy was one of the men carrying King Mabel's throne with him on it to the ring for his match with Diesel, which lasted exactly eight seconds, which is about as long as I wish their SummerSlam match would have lasted. But that tells you what uh, what happened to the Mabel push by that point. I think uh, within a month he was gone from the company, him and Mo. They also aired the debut vignette, the very first vignette for Vader, announcing his entry into the Royal Rumble match in 1996. 
And in the ever-intensifying war between WWE and WCW, we got the very first Billionaire Ted sketch. Billionaire Ted's wrestling war room with the huckster and the nacho man. Included a cameo from a young Vince Russo. Who was sitting at the boardroom table, the conference room table. And it mocked Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan as being old and not able to do all the things, all the cool high-flying moves that the the younger generation on WWE television could do. So they ended with the tagline, The new WWF generation, on top of the hill, not over it. Now earlier in the night on Nitro, Eric Bischoff gave away the smoking guns, we're going to win the Raw Bowl. Uh, which he referred to as the toilet bowl, and saying that it wasn't any good. Oh, social media would have been so much fun, right? Social media would have had a blast with this whole Monday Night War shit, if it were around back then. It would have been the mother of all dumpster fires. I'm so glad it did not exist outside of the realm of RSPW. There was no Twitter, there was no Facebook... There was none of that. 23 years ago this week, on December 28th, 1997, WCW presented its biggest Starcade of all time, which got them nearly 700,000 pay-per-view buys for a main event of Sting challenging Hollywood Hulk Hogan for the WCW World Heavyweight title, a match that had been built up for well over a year. And turned out to be one of the biggest disappointments in company history. We have we have to flash back to get the full context here, especially for newer fans. We have to flash back to the formation of the NWO in 1996 to get the full picture here. Sting was always looked at as the franchise in WCW. I mean, I I always really associated Ric Flair, but then he was more the NWA guy, right? And then the NWA became WCW. But Sting was really looked at as the franchise player. And he was the one guy, the one really, truly big name that never left back then to go work for Vince McMahon. Flair had left and come back. Vader, right, in in the end of 95, early 96, he went over. Luger. I mean, all, all those guys. Even Dusty. Arn Anderson. But Sting was the one guy. He was their franchise. In WCW. And he was one of the first men to stand up to the NWO when they formed. He and Lex Luger had agreed to partner up with Flair and Arn Anderson in the War Games match to take on Hogan Hall and Nash. And I guess uh, a mystery partner of their own. The NWO tried to play tricks and convince the babyfaces that Sting was with them. And Sting was actually a, a mole or he had, he was turning against WCW. But he really wasn't. They had a fake Sting that they brought in. But he, you know, the NWO got Luger and all those guys to doubt Sting. They started to doubt him. They didn't believe him when he said that it was all bullshit. And that is when Sting showed up on Nitro coming out of the fall brawl, you know, War Games pay-per-view. He came out on Nitro. And this was the very last time in his career that we saw Sting with the multicolored face paint. And he came out on Nitro and... Uh, I pulled part of the promo here just to read to you. This is what he said. Because I don't know that everybody necessarily knows why Sting started wearing the the crow face paint. 
I had mentioned it on my uh, one of my streams in the last week or so. And somebody sent me a message and said, you know, I never really stopped to think about why that was. I never knew that. They never knew that Sting, the whole, like, he felt betrayed and everything. So let me just read you part of this promo. He said, I saw people, I saw some wrestlers, I saw commentators, I saw best friends doubt the Stinger, which brings me to Fall Brawl. He says, I knew that I had to get to Fall Brawl and get face-to-face with the total package and let him know that it wasn't me. And what I got out of that was, no Sting. I don't believe you, Sting. Well, all I got to say is that I have been mediator. I have been babysitter for Lex Luger. And I have given him the benefit of the doubt about a thousand times in the last 12 months. And I have carried the WCW banner. I have given my blood, my sweat, my tears for WCW. So for all those fans out there and all those wrestlers and people that never doubted the Stinger, I will stand by you if you stand by me. But all the people, all the commentators, all the wrestlers, all the best friends who did doubt me, you can stick it. From now on, I consider myself a free agent. But that doesn't mean you won't see the stinger from time to time. I'm going to pop in when you least expect it. And after that is when we got Crow Sting sitting up all by himself in the rafters. So for the next 12 months, 12 plus months, that's what he did. He would pop in from time to time. He wouldn't really say much. Literally dropped in. He dropped in from the ceiling on some weeks. And honestly, those are some of the most memorable moments of Nitro during that whole Monday Night War period. And it all built to Starcade. Sting would be the savior that WCW was looking for. He would end the reign of terror of, of Hollywood Hogan. And he kind of did... He won the match, but not before Hogan took the majority of it. Didn't help that there was no agreement coming into this match, even the night of the show. There was no firm agreement on what the finish was going to be coming into this match. Sting claims that there was a lot of politics going on, which, I mean, given who was involved, is is hardly a surprise. When Hogan finally dropped the big leg on Sting in this match, referee Nick Patrick was supposed to fast count Sting. But there was no fast count. And Hogan pinned Sting clean in the middle with the leg drop. He pinned him with his finish, clean as a sheet. One, two, three. After how many months? 15 months of buildup? Then Bret Hart, who had just debuted for WCW after being screwed in Montreal... Just could not bear to see somebody else get screwed. He ran down. He punched Nick Patrick in the face. It was funny, too, because he was accusing him of fast counting. And if you listen, Nick Patrick is like, he's being all nice. Like, no, sir. No, no. It was a normal count, sir. <laughs> then Brett just blasts him in the face. And he takes this ridiculously exaggerated bump. Uh, does Nick Patrick down to the floor. I mean, it was a phantom fast count. Bret Hart looked like an asshole, coming out and beating up a referee for no reason. Sting eventually won the title, but I mean, you know, this was the easiest match in the world to book. This was the easiest match in the world for a promoter to book. Now that promoter has to deal with egos and politics and personalities, and if Hogan has creative control, that's why you don't give somebody creative control in their contract. You would think these promoters would know that by now. That's the worst thing you can do is give them creative control. It doesn't matter if you give them a little bit of creative control, 100% creative control. How are you, or how is a judge, going to determine if it ever gets to that point? Well, sir, I had 60% creative control in my contract, and so therefore I, you know, had the ability to 
say no to this finish. Like, just don't do it. If you are running a wrestling promotion, if you ever aspire to be a promoter, and I don't know why you would want to be, but do not give creative control to the wrestlers. That is the lesson learned from this, from Montreal, from all of it. So, you know, I understand that Eric Bischoff probably had to contend with that, but he is still the boss. And all you had to do after all of this build You have Sting, right, who has not wrestled for an entire year. He goes in there. He frustrates Hogan. Hogan has a chip on his shoulder. Yeah, you know, he was afraid of Sting all those weeks. But now that we're here, you know, I'm not afraid of you. But Sting is just frustrating him in the early going. Hogan just can't, he can't get a handle on this guy. But then maybe like a good old uh, eye rake or something, which even Hogan did when he was a babyface because he was always a fucking heel back scratching eye raking you're gonna tell me this guy was a fucking baby face one good rake of the eyes hogan takes over right gets the heat on sting he's beating him down and beating him down eventually sting makes a comeback and hogan uh you know maybe maybe he doesn't rake the eyes around maybe he rakes the eyes then whatever it is he's he gets control back he hits the leg drop nick patrick who had played heel referee before for the nwo he makes the fast count like he should have. And then Bret Hart comes out and, and the rest of it plays out the exact same way. It's not even that much of a deviation from what they did, but enough of one to at least not make Sting look like a, a fucking idiot. Easiest match in the world to book. Nick Patrick was on David Penzer's podcast. David Penzer was the ring announcer back then for WCW. Nick Patrick had maintained this vow of silence, I guess, for 20 years. And on the 20-year anniversary of that match, he appeared on Penzer's podcast and he talked about what happened here. And he said, what happened is that you had two people in Sting and Hulk. They were the two franchise guys and the two franchise guys were butting heads at that point in time. One guy came up to me and told me to fast count it to get some heat and give him an out. And the other guy said, don't fast count it. Keep it nice and slow. And so the person that was in charge evidently did not want to make a call, didn't want to pick a side, and then made themselves scarce all night long to where I couldn't find them to ask them, hey, what do you want me to do? So that is Nick Patrick's version of events. Eric Bischoff didn't want to get in the middle of things, and he couldn't find the boss to just ask him, hey, what do you want me to do? What What is the finish here? So he... Did what he felt he had to do. Of course, look, of course Hogan told him to count either slow or count normally. I've always felt that way. Everybody has always felt that way. I've always figured that to be the case. And now that I've heard it from the horse's mouth, I don't feel any differently than I did before. It's pretty obvious what happened here. But again, easiest match in the world to book. They built it up for so long and they botched it. 22 years ago this week, on December 29th, 1998, at the Monday Night Raw taping in Worcester, Massachusetts, Mankind pinned The Rock to become WWE Champion for the very first time on a show that would not actually air until the following year, six days later on January 4th. That show ran opposite a live edition of WCW Monday Nitro, from the Georgia Dome featuring the infamous Finger Poke of Doom which I will talk about more about during next week's history segment. Oh, I, I'll have some fun with that. 
But it was during the third hour of Nitro that night that Eric Bischoff sent this woman by the name of Annette Yather, who was his assistant producer at that time. He sent Annette out during one of the commercial breaks to tell Tony Schiavone, relay instructions to their play-by-play announcer that he wanted him to spoil the outcome of the title match on WWE Raw and then just crap all over it. And so he didn't tell him exactly what to say. He didn't put the words in his mouth, but he did tell Tony Schiavone, I want you to just spoil it and I want you to just fucking just blast it. Just crap all over it. And Shivani is the one who came up on his own, he claims, with the uh, butts and seats comment. Uh, he said Bischoff didn't specifically give him the words to use, but he knew what his marching orders were. He got them, and he did what his boss told him to do. He didn't want to do it. He thought it would be dumb. If you tell people, hey, there's a world title match on the other channel, and they're going to crown a new champion, what are you going to do? <laughs> what do you think people are going to want to do? Unless you are just such an ardent WCW fan that you really don't care about anything going on on the other channel. What do you think most people are probably going to do if you tell them that you're going to get to see a world title change? If you uh, flip on over to the other show. But he went on there and he said Mick Foley, who used to wrestle for us as Cactus Jack, was going to win their world title. And then very sarcastically said, that'll put some butts in the seats. Then again, people don't talk about this, but there was a second segment a little bit later on during one of the the mid-card matches where he repeated that Foley was going to win their world title. And then he made a very snide remark about, that's the guy, like, that's going to be their world, like, he's some kind of creature. Like, that's going to be their world champion. So, what ended up happening is you had uh, about 600,000 viewers switched away from Nitro to watch Mankind win the title on Raw. Mick Foley was hurt by the comments. It did, on a personal level, hurt him. He had considered Shivani a friend. And he says what he did was, he waited until the ratings came out to call Tony. He had his number. And he intentionally, when he called him, he was very intentionally, he left a very morose, downtrodden message saying, listen, it's it's Mick Foley. I heard what you said. I honestly don't know why you guys would do that to somebody who worked so hard for so long for your company. And, and in truth, it probably just hurt your ratings. But anyway, I just thought I would say hello. Shivani called him back. Foley's wife answered the phone, and she comes to him and says, uh, hey, Mick, Tony Shivani is on the phone, and he sounds really sad. <laughs> And so, anyway, the two of them got on the phone, and, and, you know, they basically made up. They had a very pleasant conversation. Shivani explained, look, you can't possibly think I meant what I said. I was just doing what I was told. And, um, look, I, w- what I remember from it, because I was, you know, into all this shit back then, you know, it was, it was really a great time to be a fan. It really was. And I was right in that age group. I was right in that demographic where I was just eating that shit up. Every week. It was just must-see television. You'd be flipping back and forth. And I wasn't the biggest WCW fan, but I'd watch. I knew what was going on. But I remember being kind of pissed because WWE spoiled the... You didn't need Eric Bischoff that night to spoil the outcome. WWE spoiled the outcome of that match on their own website the Tuesday before. And I remember this because I remember going on WWF.com and it was the first thing you saw. 
I think they actually had a picture of him being hoisted up by DX and holding the belt. They spoiled the match on their own website. And they did it on purpose because they wanted people to know that, hey, we got a big title change and you should tune in. But yeah, I, you, you want to blame Eric Bench, you can blame WWE as well because they, they spoiled it on their own damn page. Uh, Stone Cold was not originally supposed to even be there that night. He he had the night off. I think he may have even had like a, a minor knee injury. But he was filming some stuff for their Super Bowl commercial that they got. Remember their first Super Bowl ad from Titan Tower in 99? I think he had been filming stuff for it. And they asked him, they said, look, um, we need you to do the run-in in this match. So he ended up being there and he ended up coming out. It is still to this day the biggest pop that I have seen or heard in all my life. And I know all the stories about the Road Warrior pop because back in the day in the NWA, those guys, they would get huge reactions. And you can find a whole bunch of guys over over the years that have gotten tremendous reactions when they would come out. I don't know, even if you don't have Stone Cold Steve Austin as your number one guy of all time, or you think that Hulk Hogan drew more money or John Cena in total drew more money, I don't know where on the chart Austin would fall. Obviously, he would be near the top. But I will say this. And I grew up a Hogan fan, and I saw Hogan posing every fucking night and every, you know, all the big events where Hogan was just this larger-than-life guy. There has never been anybody else in the history of wrestling, certainly, I think, in this country. Okay, I won't even speak for Mexico and Japan and, and some of the the icons that they have there. I've never in my life and probably never will, see anybody get the kind of reactions when that glass would shatter and Austin would walk out. I can't even describe it to a newer fan. It's it's hard to put into words. Uh, the reaction and the love and just ever just what what would happen when that glass would shatter was like wrestling magic. And the building would just come unglued. And all the flash bulbs going off when he would pose. Because you don't really have that now because everybody just takes pictures with their iPhone. I mean, I'm sorry all you Android people, but everyone just takes pictures with their with their smartphone now. So you don't even really have as much of like the flashing of the camera bulbs and all that. It was It was like a religious experience for some people. But of all the reactions that Austin has ever gotten, I've never seen or heard one as loud as this one. When the glass shattered... You could see everybody rise from their seats. And it's fun to go back and watch because if you look, you can spot... They're, they're wearing like turquoise colored shirts. You could spot the security guys in the crowd. And they, they see and they hear this reaction. And some of them, they just turn to like watch the show. Because they're like, what is going on here? And Austin just marches on down to the ring. And grabs the chair, and he hits Rock in the head with it, and he puts Mankind on top of the Rock, and the referee, Carol Hebner, counts one, two, three, and everyone's celebrating, everyone's so happy, Vince McMahon is beside himself at ringside, Austin throws his hat at him, he flips him off, it is this fantastic moment, that is one of the greatest moments in Raw history, but that reaction that night, in Worcester, is still the biggest pop I've ever heard, I mean, it looked like the building was shaking. You could barely hear the announcers. It was so loud. Michael Cole, by the way, was the one who made the call that night on headset, not Jim Ross. Jim Ross had been out with his second bout of Bell's Palsy for a few weeks by that point. And it's still, I think, one of Michael Cole's finest calls of his entire career. 
I think Jim Ross may have been in his ear that night feeding him that line about, you know, living in his Ford, uh, whatever car it was. And I wonder if it was Jim Ross feeding that to him. I would love to know if that's the case because I, I remember, I think, hearing that, you know, while he was off TV, like at the Royal Rumble and stuff, that Jim Ross was on headset backstage kind of coaching. I don't know if he was feeding him specific lines, but he was coaching him on on uh, commentary and stuff. I don't know if JR was there that night doing the same. Uh, or when Cole, since it was a taped show, maybe he did the commentary in post-production. You know, was Jim Ross there feeding him lines and helping him along? I don't know. It's possible. It's possible that he was. Uh, but that was Cole's, maybe his finest moment on commentary. Just a, Just an amazing night. 18 years ago this week, on January 2nd, 2003, it was Wedded Bliss. On SmackDown is Dawn Marie married Tori Wilson's real-life father, Al Wilson. They got married in their underwear. This all started in late 2002. Dawn Marie was feuding with Tori. She ended up in a relationship with Tori's dad, uh, but then revealed that Al Wilson was not the only Wilson that she was interested in. And, uh, yeah, she wasn't interested in in, uh, Wilson... uh, you know, volleyballs or basketballs or uh, Wilson, the neighbor from Home Improvement. She was interested in Tori. She wanted Tori Wilson. And she blackmailed Tori into some hot lesbian action. This was during Vince McMahon's HLA phase. He loved the HLA. So she blackmailed her in exchange for not marrying or agreeing not to marry her father. And we had the memorable hotel room scene that aired at Armageddon in 2002. You know, for those of you for research purposes who would like to go back on the network and watch it. The uh, the hotel scene where Dawn Marie is waiting for Tori and Tori shows up in her lingerie and she's very uncomfortable. And Dawn is trying to seduce her and she's feeding her strawberries and, you know, plying her with alcohol. Tori downs like an entire glass of wine to calm her nerves she disrobes her, and uh, I don't know if you need me to give you the play-by-play for this. God, it's getting hot in here. Um, I mean, look, who wouldn't want to sign up for a segment like that with Tori Wilson? I believe that Tori Wilson is the most beautiful woman to ever grace WWE television. And they have had some some beautiful women over the years. I had a, As a kid, I had a big crush on Miss Elizabeth, right? She was the picture of class, a very pretty woman. But Tori Wilson, to me... Wow, she she really and she'll be on actually on Legends Night. They're bringing her back for Raw Legends Night as I am recording this uh, tomorrow night. Uh, I will be tuned in to see uh, Tori Wilson, but she uh, ends up marrying Tori's father anyway, despite the footage that aired, which Al Wilson he could take no more. So before they got to the really good stuff, they showed the two of them kissing and making out, and then he was like, "No, no, turn it off." And they cut the footage, and Al Wilson in that moment became the biggest heel in the history of the business. But they went through with the wedding anyway, and she became Tori's stepmom. The wedding itself was actually very uneventful as wrestling weddings go. But it was during their honeymoon that, well, tragedy struck. Al Wilson died of a heart attack because Don Marie would not stop having sex with him. His his old heart, his old ticker just could take no more. Uh, she basically uh, fucked him to death. They even showed the medics trying to... Because, rev- of course, they had a camera in the room. Nobody bothered to give CPR. 
but they showed the medics with him on the bed trying to revive him with the shock paddles and it was just to no avail as great as smackdown was in that 2002 2003 period it was the a show Uh, it also had stuff like this which was just although i will say i will take this over the katie vick stuff raw had the katie vick stuff smackdown had al wilson and dawn marie which really wasn't much better but i would i would happily take this over the katie vick garbage on monday night raw but at the Royal Rumble, it all built to a match, as these things do, between Tori and Dawn. They build it as the first ever stepmother versus stepdaughter match. And Tori Wilson won, and this god-awful storyline was finally put out to pasture. It was, a, you know, it was a wrestling match for three minutes that Tori won with a neckbreaker. That was it. You talk about a truly terrible payoff. I mean, for God's sakes, if you're going to do an angle like this and go full wrestle crap, then go full wrestle crap. You have the ghost of Al Wilson show up or something. Just go full camp with the big payoff at the end, but they didn't do that. They gave you a straight wrestling match that wasn't even any good. And in three minutes, it was over. And that was the big payoff. I think that these, uh, you know, all the guys backstage writing this show, they just wanted an excuse to have Don Marie and Tori Wilson in a in a sex scene. And they got their wish. And when the sex scene was over, they didn't know what else to do. They're like, well, we already got to the good stuff, so now we got to get rid of this shit. we got to end this. <laughs> and they ended it in the most anticlimactic way possible. But uh, two years ago, just days before Tori Wilson was inducted, into the WWE Hall of Fame. Al Wilson passed away for real. Talk about uh, horrible timing. He died, I, th- I want to say it was two days before she went into the Hall of Fame. Didn't get to see her go in. 14 years ago this week, on the New Year's Day 2007 episode of Monday Night Raw from Miami, Kevin Federline. The estranged ex-husband of Britney Spears pinned the WWE champion. He pinned John Cena after Cena was clobbered in the head by Umaga, his Royal Rumble opponent, with his own title belt. K-Fed is still owed his title match. He never did get his title match after this. I believe, look, I am a firm believer that when you pin the champion, you should be the champion or at least get a shot at the title, all right? And he never did, so... I'm just saying. K-Fed should have had a shot at the title. Now, Federline, why was he involved here? Why would they bring this guy in? Federline had a new rap album out around that time, and uh, he worked out. He really worked an extended angle for a few months with John Cena that started back in October of 06, where he made a couple of appearances on Raw and got physical and got up and, and seen his face. Then it's Cyber Sunday, He cost Cena the champion of champions match by hitting him in the back with uh, King Booker's world heavyweight title. Booker T ended up winning that match. The next night is when K-Fed laid down the gauntlet. He laid down the challenge to a match. John Cena, meet me in a match on New Year's Day. And they got, you know, publicity for it. They got what they wanted to get out of it. And by all accounts, you know, from the talent that worked there, the reports at the time were that Federline was very well received. He was a big fan and he was very respectful. Nobody really had a bad word to say about him. Of course, those people hadn't listened to his music at that point. 
But he walked out for the match wearing a big boxing robe, told Cena the match was now going to be no disqualification. And he introduced his trainer and good friend Johnny Nitro, John Morrison, to be in his corner. They had their match, if you could call it that. Nitro got involved. Fetterline kicked Cena low from behind. Then Umaga got involved. And he laid out John Cena. And K-Fed scored the pin. A very casual pin on John Cena. That match is what opened the show that night. That was the first WWE match of 2007. And in the main event, Cena lost a handicap match. Boy, he lost twice on the same show. Cena lost a handicap match against Umaga, Armando, Alejandro, Estrada, Johnny Nitro, and Jonathan Coachman. My God, what a fucking... (laughs) Holy shit. What a squad that is. What a squad that is. Umaga, Armando, Nitro, and Coachman. They got the win when Cena gave Umaga two chair shots to the head, a pair of FUs on Nitro and Coachman. And then he made a mad dash for the announce desk, which is where K-Fed was doing commentary with JR and King. And he threw him into the ring. He gave Kevin Federline an FU to close out the show. But it will forever show in the record books that Kevin Federline has a win over John Cena that Cena has yet to avenge. Now, as far as his new album is concerned, did a little bit of research here. K-Fed's album sold a whopping 6,000 copies in its first week on sale. Only 16,000 units in total. Here is just a sampling of the reviews of the album on the Metacritic website, if I may. FedEx, as he is now appropriately being called, is a waste of everyone's time. Please, people, make him flop. Stop talking about him, and perhaps, just maybe, he will go away. K-Fed is neither dope nor whack, and his rhymes are definitely the opposite of tight. This person says, I am disgusted by this album. I agree with the song America's Most Hated. He is truly America's Most Hated. On what day did God create Kevin Federline, and could he have not rested on that day too? This is the first time an album has actually made me laugh so hard that I woke up sore the next day. Doctors should prescribe this album to people suffering from clinical depression. And finally, this is my favorite. Captain's Log. Star date, 9522.6. I've never trusted white boy rappers, and I never will. I can never forgive them for the death of my culture. It seems to me that our mission to listen to halfway decent rap while escorting the Chancellor of the Klingon High Council to a peace summit is problematic at best. Spock says that this could be an historic occasion, and I would like to believe him, But how on earth can a redneck this awful at everything he does release an album and get to Britney before me? That is a very good question. Seven years ago, on December 29th, 2014, on Monday Night Raw, Edge and Christian made a special appearance to host a joint cutting-edge peep show at the end of the night where Seth Rollins demanded that John Cena, and this is back when 
Seth Rollins had the money in the bank briefcase. He was saying John a lot. Remember that? Every five seconds. Come on, John. Come on, John. Every five seconds. He wanted John Cena to come out and give him what he wants. He wanted the authority to be reinstated. The authority had been banished. Team Cena got the win at Survivor Series thanks to the assist from Sting. Only John Cena held the power, apparently, to reinstate the authority. That is what Seth Rollins wanted. And when John Cena didn't come out, he he hit Christian in the gut with the briefcase. And then Big Show was in the ring as well with Noble and Joey Mercury. And they held Edge down. They held his head down on the briefcase. And Rollins was threatening to give him a curb stomp and break his neck. John Cena ran out. He told Cena to stop or I'll do it like he was going to blow his brains out or something. I'm going to break this man's neck, John, if you don't give me what I want. Give me what I want, John. You know what I want. And John Cena, in the end, felt he had no choice. This was like a hostage situation. And John Cena said that the authority was back. Thus becoming the biggest heel to me of the year 2014. I thought we were done with this authority bullshit. It had gone on for like a year and a half. It was past its expiration date. Really, I I think it it should have just died out after the uh, Daniel Bryan stuff earlier in the year. But here I thought we were finally done with the authority and they were going to live up to their stipulation. (laughs) Ha 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 ha. Ah, yes. What a fool I turned out to be. Just like that. Poof. The authority was reinstated. Thus rendering that Survivor Series stipulation completely useless. Completely meaningless. But hey, now that Edge is back, if they ever want to revisit this, they have the basis for a match. You want to talk about long-term storytelling? There's your story for the match between the two of them. And two years ago this week, on January 2nd, 2019... We lost one of the all-time greats, WWE Hall of Famer, Mean Gene Okerlund, passed away at the age of 76 after taking a bad fall. He survived three kidney transplants. Didn't even realize he had that many, but his son, uh, Todd, I think it was, or is it Todd or Tor? I I don't know if he had more than one son, but uh, he said his father had three kidney transplants in his life. First one was all the way back in 1996 when he was still active and full-time working for WCW. There was absolutely nobody better at what he did in wrestling on interviews than Mean Gene Okerlund. Nobody. He was the best. He was the measuring stick as far as those kind of stand-up interviews go. He could do commentary too, but his strong point was really guiding those interviews. Whatever you were looking for, if you were looking for... A serious interview, if you were looking for... And there were plenty of bloopers with him, you know, telling jokes and stuff. Whatever you needed out of him, he could give it to you. He was a total pro. He had been around forever doing this. He was a master of his craft. And I heard him years ago in an interview. And I brought this up to him when I interviewed him. Which I had the pleasure of doing at uh, WrestleCon. I was uh, doing a bunch of interviews for Fight TV. I was their roving correspondent to WrestleCon back in 2017 in Orlando. And my big get of all the people I interviewed. And I interviewed uh, Demolition and just, it was it was such a thrill for me. But I got to sit down, do a sit down for 10 minutes with Mean Gene Okerlund. And 
it was an amazing thing for me to be able to do. And I asked him about that. I said, you know, you had made the comment years ago that the art of a good interviewer in those stand-up interviews that, you know, he used to do, it was two things that you need to do. He said, you need to listen and you need to react. And you don't always see that these days. There was nobody better. And uh, I will always remember the sit down that I had with him. Uh, I got to, I got to ask him, well, of course, my personal question, I knew I had to ask him if I was going to meet him. Who exactly were you talking to when you told that person at the 1992 Royal Rumble after the event to put that cigarette out? He finally revealed the answer. I'm not going to give it away here. You can go back and watch the interview. But I got to ask him that question and uh, it was just a, a big thrill for me. It was very sad to, to hear when he, Passed away because uh, they don't make them like Mean Gene anymore. Those guys from back then, they were cut from a different cloth. And not that they don't have good commentators or good interviewers now. They, they have good ones, but they don't make them like they used to. And that's this week in wrestling history. Nice, big, fat history segment this week to start out the new year. I hope you enjoyed it. I am going to uh, just run through two very quick mailbag questions here. There's a lot more, again, from the New Year's stream, if you missed it. We'll do more questions next week. TheSolemonster at gmail.com is the place to write to if you have questions. This one is from Steve in Bakersfield, California. With the Royal Rumble coming up, I know 1992 is your favorite match, and it's also a favorite of mine. Is there another Royal Rumble match that you consider a favorite of yours? Uh, there is, and if I had to narrow it down to one or two, I would say 2001 is a great one, and 2005. I really like the 2005 Royal Rumble match, even with the, the botched finish, Vince McMahon uh, tearing both of his quads that night. So those are the two I would throw out there. I mean, I enjoyed others too, but those are the two that stand out to me. And Dev. From Queens, New York, with a buy, sell, or rent question. On the best WWE pay-per-views from the year 2000. From Royal Rumble, Backlash, and Fully Loaded. I actually would probably put them in that order. I would buy on the Royal Rumble, I would rent on Backlash, and I would sell on Fully Loaded. But all three were great shows. So even saying that I would sell on Fully Loaded really doesn't do that show justice. They were all great. A lot of their pay-per-views that year were very, very good. Some of them were not. WrestleMania was very forgettable that year. Uh, They weren't all total winners, but yeah, I would do it in that order. I would buy on the Rumble and rent Backlash, which really was WrestleMania. I mean, Backlash was WrestleMania in the year 2000. And uh, I would sell on Fully Loaded. So again, email me, thesolemonster at gmail.com. Please check out that nearly four-hour stream that I did. Spent uh, my New Year's hanging out with you guys, and it was a lot of fun. And I am going to be back live on Wednesday night, talking AEW New Year's Smash. And we got back-to-back nights of Wrestle Kingdom coming up. Again, it kicks off less than 24 hours from now. My plan is to hopefully have the time, amongst all the other work I have, to watch the shows and then I will record a a quick review for both nights and plan to get them up on the YouTube channel and maybe push them out to the feed. We'll see. 
And I'm also going to be working up my top 10 countdown. I have my matches. I just have to put everything together. My top 10 matches for 2020. We'll work on that and get that up on YouTube as well. Next Sunday is episode 686 of The Sound Off. And I'm thinking that's probably a good week for a prediction show. What do you guys think? We do the prediction show every year. So I'm thinking next Sunday, what is that? The 10th, right? January 10th, episode 686. Let's plan for that to be the annual prediction show. So that's something to look forward to next week. A lot of good content coming up in the month of January. That's just a small taste of it. Again, thank you all for your support all throughout 2020. Let's do 2021 bigger and better. I want year 14 to be our biggest and best year yet. I can't do it without you. So you just keep sharing and liking and supporting and I'll be uh, cranking out the content for you each and every week. Until then, be well, stay safe, and I will see you for episode 686 coming up next Sunday right here on the Salamonster Sounds Off. Take care, guys. The Salamonster Sounds Off. You mean you don't want to hear Josh Matthews doing commentary? What is Don Callis doing here? He's got Kenny Omega. You don't want to hear that for, for two hours? It's a two-hour show. Can you imagine me doing an entire podcast in that Josh Matthews voice? Let's read your super chats. Oz and Glorious. I don't think I would survive. I'd be spitting up blood before I'm even done recording the full show. I'm very excited. Sounds like he has a stick up his ass. The Salamonster Sounds Off. Available wherever you hear podcasts, including iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and now Pandora. Want more content? Visit YouTube.com slash The Salamonster for Sound Off extras and more. And follow The Salamonster on Twitter, at Salamonster. 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 Put that cigarette out. Salamonster Sounds Off.